You are listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, conversation interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. Today's agenda, episode 10 of season five, Cold Cuts, an episode that is chock full of one cut after another, almost as if it's chasing a record. Today's episode is in two parts. Part one is just me. And part two is a conversation with Lorenzo Antonucci about this episode and more. Lorenzo is an actor and producer, and we've become friends over the past year. He connected me with Drea and made that episode possible. Okay, let's do this. This episode was written by Robin Green and Mitchell Burgess. It originally aired on May 9th, 2004. It was directed by Mike Figgis. Figgis also recorded a director's cut on the Blu-ray DVD and offered some great insights about this episode as well. I particularly like the parts where he talked about applying his independent film sensibility to this project. And there's also a great anecdote about how some of the staff on set thought he was an extra. HBO Synopsis. Tony B. and Christopher unearth some old memories during an otherwise idyllic trip to the country. Tony and Carmela plan another party. Janice lands in anger management therapy after a sports rage incident. Benny and Terry solve a missing Vespa mystery. And Tony puts his sister's newfound serenity to the test. We open on a long, slow fade-in almost like a Michael Kiwanuka song. We're on the docks around Port Newark. Guy smoking in the foreground. His real name is Gino Caffarelli, and I talked to him a few months ago. I'll probably release that episode soon. And then there's another guy, the muscle, looking out up the Hackensack River in the background. There's a tugboat pulling out. That whole visual was very specific and took some time to get right. Figa said it was very important to chase. Note the older Cadillac off to the side of the frame. These guys are either earners or hit the jackpot, or maybe a combination of both. Every time I see a Cadillac like that, I think of Massive Attack's cover of William Devon's Be Thankful for What You Got. To my amazement, originally titled, A Cadillac Don't Come Easy. In this scene, Vinnie Pitts is kind of, to quote the song, dig in the scene with a gangsta lean. Anyway, they're part of Carlo Gervaisi's crew. Carlo Gervaisi, recall, played by actor Arthur Nascarella is an elder statesman made guy, originally part of the Jimmy Altieri crew. He took the post after Jimmy Altieri was clipped for being a turncoat. Was he? Did that ever get corroborated? Does it matter? Guy follows a bit of a pattern picking up where other people left off. Keep your eye on that. He always kind of seemed like a one-foot-out-the-door kind of guy ambivalent, nonchalant almost. We'll see how that plays out. 
We learned the guys were waiting on Vespa scooters. They didn't show. But they got to keep waiting. Turns out these guys are fronting with that Cadillac. A couple of Joe Jerkoffs over here, to quote the prolific and the profound. Vespa, for the initiated couple three of you. Vespa is an Italian scooter brand, subsidiary of Piaggio, one of seven companies owned by them. Vespa means wasp in Italian, not white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, the bee-on-your-hat kind of wasp. They became ubiquitous post-war because of the immediate need for quickly manufacturable and affordably priced transportation for the masses. Thanks to an early push and embrace from Hollywood elites on sets, it became a cultural icon. And for the most part, the integrity of the brand is stronger than ever. The word is synonymous with scooter, like Google is to search. Cut to Tony complaining about the Vespas to Johnny Sack. Guys were waiting by the Hackensack River all fucking night. The way he says Hackensack. It's got as many inflection points as the actual river itself. Also, 100% of the time I hear the word Hackensack, I think of Billy Joel. Is that all you get for your money? The river is dotted with several rail and road bridges. The landscape of it is forever etched in your mind if you've watched The Sopranos any number of times. Sometimes I see a flash of those bridges when I blink. What a thing. Connectivity to a place I've never lived, where I've spent considerable time, but that isn't native to me. The only equivalency that compares is going back to where I grew up. But even home doesn't carry the weight or the mythology and intrigue that this slice of the tri-state does. Port Newark, Tony explains, should be open for business on account of Johnny Sachs' longshoreman. It should be a wide open field up the middle, all the way to the end zone of larceny. Johnny Sack blames it on security. Al-Qaeda. Even his boots on the ground can't navigate that. This, of course, was pulled right from the headlines. 2004-2005, CNN reported several times on congressional investigations that found flaws in port security. Tony's suspicious. More suspicious, for the time being, about Johnny Sack than he is about Al-Qaeda. That same suspicion that carried over from episodes back where Johnny Sack exited the car at Joey Peep's funeral. Things were never settled there. Never made right. It's the worst feeling. And Tony's face, as indifferent as he lets on, quite possibly as a defense mechanism, is all our faces when we are unsettled about an encounter, an interaction, or a relationship on the brink of something. But you're not quite sure what. Great shot of Benny and Phil standing back. Alex Sakharov portraiture by numbers over here. Great nugget from Figgis. Alec wants to light the scene for the psychology of what you're doing. It's never made official, but it's implied Benny drove Tony into the city. New wingman. Billy Leotardo's wiping down Johnny's car. 
A tinge surprised that flew with Phil. A leotardo doesn't buff cars. That would be a disgrace, wouldn't it? Great frame of Tony confronting Johnny Sack through the window of the car. The angle. These upward shooting angles, like polar ice cap reflections to outer space or something, will be a theme this episode. A wonderful, symmetric touch. Another note on angles. This time, the car's angle. Parked in a zero-fucks-given kind of way. Like MJ pulling up to the practice facility in the last dance. Not pulled all the way up and taking two spaces. Johnny's dismissive. But is he decoying? Did he actually do anything? Or is he playing Tony as if he did to get under his skin? Great setup, either way. King of New York, trying out levers and buttons on his new boss Batmobile. The camera swing from the Maserati to Tony's face. Sharp. Cutting. Note, Phil, optically, is resting on Tony's left shoulder. Always with the monkeys on the back. Put this visual in your back pocket for down the line. They're outside a place called Pearl Daddy and the Averna Social Club, both around 201 Mott Street, pretty close to the Williamsburg Bridge. Easy access for Johnny Sack to retreat to his Brooklyn headquarters. Cut from one soprano of varying degrees of anger, Tony, to another, Janice. Janice is cheering. Are you ready for the mood fluctuations this episode? Here they come. In fairness to her, she's doing what most parents of kids that have no game do. Saying the opponent is older than he or she really is. Been there, done that. There's a mom on the other team who's going ballistic. But unbeknownst to her, she's stoking a fire inside Janice who's about to go Dracarys on her ass. That Game of Thrones reference will make sense when you hear my chat with Lorenzo. Janice says to the woman, who herself is out of control. Your kid is out of control. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree, Janice. Also, a bit of writing symmetry as Tony has told Bobby to get his wife under control on at least two occasions. The combative mother shoots her shot and tells Janice to shut up. Jan pushes, gets pushed back. The home video cut choice. Perfection. Comedy amidst the chaos in the most deft and subtle way. Janice throws haymakers. Somebody quick, put her up on IG next to Tyson's recent training workouts. Call Clint Eastwood. Million dollar baby redux. Something. The woman's writhing in pain. Broken nose. Crowd screams Makushla. Well, not exactly, but you get the visual. Cut to Silvio, saying it'll cost you a hundred. Clever. It's going to cost Janice a lot more than a hundred, though. hundred grand, maybe. Sill's playing cards with Polly and Carlo. Tony comes in hot. Guys try to get up. Waves at them to stay down. Don't get up. He's over there fake shit ever since Carmela called him out on it. Pours himself a drink, 
like at a saloon in the Old West. Where's Al Swearingen? Tells the guys the Vespas came, but Johnny couldn't get them because of increased security at the ports. In other words, bullshit. To echo Autopsy's use of the phrase when we did an episode together a few weeks ago. That theme is ever-present in this episode as well, and we'll revisit it again a bit later. Carlo's concerned. The port is the basis of his livelihood. He's owed half that fucking load. Makes you think of Christopher's line. I hit the fucking mother load. Doesn't sound quite as complete or convincing when presented as Carlo's scenario. I hit half the fucking mother load. Tony says he's got to take a call. They all scramble to get up again. Look at these guys, putting some respect on Tony's name. What was Carmela talking about? Tony tells Benny to go hang out around Port Newark to see what's going on. Term knockaround guy is used later in this episode, but it's worth mentioning here too because is Benny the knockaround guy of the Soprano crew? Just putting that out there because right now, feels like it a little bit. Tony answers, knows it's Carmela, says he's on the property taxes. Hello to you too. She really called to say that Janice got arrested and we cut to the local TV news. Wouldn't this have made CNN? You see Anderson Cooper covering this? Essex County blares on the screen. Toughest mom in Essex County. Was she wearing a jacket? A Verona woman with ties to the mafia. Verona. Romeo and Juliet over here. The Leo and Claire Danes one all the way. Jillian Glessner. she real? No, that was an actor. But the name choice was convincing as hell. Hall of Fame for eyewitness reporter names. Right up there with April O'Neil. The news anchor guy. Was he a little too overzealous with his patronizing of a certain Italian subculture? Was that the point? Was that the show's commentary on the level of heightened douchebaggery that was endemic in the media communication and reporting of Italian-centric organized crime? Soccer protection program? Who's writing jokes for this guy? What's the next step? A Netflix special now? Summit Avenue Park, we learn, was the scene of the crime. That's in Newton, New Jersey. Real-life location was Fiegel Fieldhouse in Bogota. hope I'm saying that right. Bogota, New Jersey. I feel like there's a Narcos reference waiting to happen right there somewhere. Bogota is right on, of all places, the Hackensack River. I just feel so bad for the kids, another parent says. Perfect cut to Tony's squinting face. And then the stray shot of Janice running after the fact and getting tackled. Remember how hopeful and upbeat she started the day? The fluctuations and range by both Gandolfini and Aida Turturro in this episode are pitch perfect. They're like synchronized swimmers of chaos. Guess you could call it a mafia-related hit. (laughs) Poor taste, Jillian. Should she be fearing for her life right now? Next, psychologist Bella 
Kakuk comes on. That name, again, we're awash in the symbolism. Bullshit. He's talking about people who are prone to rage. Cut to Tony, screaming motherfucker, and breaking a plate. We follow him to banging on Janice's door. My name was all over the TV, he says, because of your bullshit. There's that word again. What you're going to do is you're going to call Neil Mink. You're going to play it down. You're going to pay the fine and not turn us into one of your fucking co-celebrants. Anybody's side but mine. What a turn of phrase by Tony. And strikingly correct and accurate. Did he pick that up from a war doc? Or did he grab it from Carmela during one of their kitchen conversations? In any case, the expression, which is French, dates back as far back as the 1760s. The OJ case is an example of a cause celebre. And that's relevant because OJ is intrinsically referenced in the episode by Silvio in a few minutes. The expression peaked in use during the 80s and 90s, and it is all but considered archaic in 2000's onward parlance. It's a great expression, though. But I feel like it has more heft written rather than in spoken word. Final note on cause celebre. Note Bobby's look down and away after T drops the expression, almost as if his brain is processing what the fuck just came out of Tony's mouth. Like it no doubt did the first time I heard it. That bitch is lucky I didn't kill her. Well, we know that. What? You and your fucking temper, Janice. Get out. Bobby, always in the fucking dark. What if Tony had told him right there about Richie? Any chance that slips? He looks at Bobby and tells him, this is the end of it. In other words, that was an order. Bobby runs out to talk to him. Says Janice called Sophia her daughter. Come to think of it, maybe that's what triggered the Harpo thing later on. I don't give a fuck, Tony says. Then he backpedals. But the first thought is generally the true thought. The instinctual thought. Tony doesn't give a fuck. And then he says he does. But is he feeling bad for Bobby? Or is he merely placating a disgruntled worker? I'd go with the latter all day. Any sentimentality he might feel for Bobby because of what he's done for Junior is overrided by the dismay for Janice. And especially right in that moment since she posted his name all over the 5 o'clock news. Cut to Jan going to check on Sophia, who's mortified. Says you're not my parent. Then dares Janice to punch her. This is the first of two shots across the bow for Janice this episode. First, with an unlikely attacker, Sophia. And later, at the very end, with Tony. Awareness of the level of her bullshit spans generations. Moments later, Jan's checking herself in the vanity mirror, tells Bobby she wants to talk tomorrow. She's exhausted, but he goes Apollo Creed on her. There is no tomorrow. Says, you gotta see an anger specialist. He's serious, but she barbs. And I think you need to see a weight loss specialist. With all this quarantine, I could actually use one of those too. Her barb though, no pun intended with their other sibling, is indicative of something else. 
a classic telltale sign that the truth hurts. Bobby continues. Sophia says one little thing and you get nasty. He was eavesdropping. He's not exactly quiet as a mouse. So that reveal is two things. One, an impressive physiological feat. And two, he's more calculating than we've previously seen to this point. And then there's the obvious thought. He's been hanging around Janice for a long time. He continues. This is not an isolated incident. They won't let you shop up at the corner anymore. (sighs) This is a digital short waiting to happen. A series of vignettes of Janice and the corner store proprietor battling it out for their piece of North Jersey. Episode one, Burnt Coffee Beans Restitution. It's also nostalgic. Long live corner stores and diners and bookstores, neighborhood haunts. I can be a card-carrying member of the It's All a Big Nothing Club as much as the next guy. But without those places, we're already there. Bobby says he likes a spitfire type. Great word. Again, just so indicative of the kind of writing on the show. It's not just the word. It's its use, delivery, and situational context. It just clicks. The writers are able to needle drop with language. No beats, no bars, no rhythm, no click track or metronome. Just staccato language and context. Bottom line, Bobby and the kids can't keep living like this. It's not peaceful anymore, he says. But here's my thing. My fucking cause celebre. Couldn't he see the writing on the wall sooner? Is he that naive? Or was Janice always part of a bigger play for him? A means to an end. A ramp to drive his Lionel right into boss territory. If you're surrounded by it long enough, you start to think. Maybe me. Proximity to power. Remember how we felt about Tony behind his back when we were first introduced to him back in season two? Always kind of had an agenda. Janice explains. In my house, it was dog eat dog. But isn't that excuse played out after you hit your 20s or thereabouts? Blaming your parents for all your shit? He gives her an ultimatum. Go to anger management class or we're done. Right there, I always wondered, would his fate be like Richie Aprile's? Would Janice go back to back on clipping partners? Richie never threatened to walk on her and look what happened to him. So thought. Cut to makeshift casino night above a hardware store. Fitting since card games are the nuts and bolts of this thing of ours. It's Tony B's game. Remember the one T gave him when he said, put me in coach for time served and all that. Christopher. Pissed, asks Pauly. 
what Tony B clears. What are they, accountants now? Polly imagines 2,500 to 5 Gs a night. That's a pretty big delta, Polly. That's like saying the Jets are going to win by a lot or a little. Chris, meanwhile, is drawing out that arc in his head. Any game he ran would manouche to skew on the higher end of that range. More cold cuts. Most of this episode is chipping away at Christopher's ribs. And as I say that, when you align that with the imagery of him crushing human bone later in the episode, the verbal hammering he withstands this hour is an interesting counterbalance. Polly's whole thing is, poor you. You're not the teacher's pet anymore. And he continues, now you know what I went through. Interesting reveal. After years of up and down and animosity and undermining between these two, at last, somehow, some way, they're on equal footing or a mutual understanding and respect for the moment, at least. After all, these guys are as volatile as anyone else in Jan's anger management class this episode. As the scene ends, Christopher has a moment of recognition. One of many this episode, certainly more than most days for him. Though it's unclear what he's really thinking and feeling. Throughout it all, I've always read this as a confluence of feelings. A dam breaks for him this episode, and like everyone else's mood, his fluctuates too, especially at the end. I wonder if a big part of that is sobriety. Cut to Tony pulling up in front of a cake shop. Inside, Christopher and Adriana are tasting cakes. Having their cake and eating it too. One of their lighter moments. Only to be outdone by Tony's blaring horn. There's that soprano's ethos coming right for you again. Throttling you by the throat every time you let your guard down. One of my old bosses used to do that to me. Lean on the horn. Happened to drive an Escalade as well. It's like they know another life moment is taking place that doesn't place them number one. And they're reminding you. Christopher runs out to the car says what's up to Tony, and importantly, looks only at Tony. Tony B's in the car too. Tony B says what's up. Chris gives him one notch above an eye roll. How'd you find me, he asks. How did he find him? What was the next closest thing to location services on smartphones back then? Tony didn't say it, but It kind of just felt like he was cruising the neighborhood and stumbled upon him. That, or maybe the cake shop was a collection spot. Satrial's cousin set up a confection business. What? Our friend with the orchard called, Tony says. Here come the metaphors. He's moving to Florida. They're talking about their mutual uncle, Uncle Pat. Not a relative of Tony by blood, though. Still got your canned peaches up there. I just had the car service. Watch what you say. I gotta move that shit. Great line to remind us of the stakes and to sell the back and forth here. Christopher, I gotta move that shit? This guy in his fast track, man. T says Tony B and Chris have to move it together, but Chris insists he'll do it himself. Part of me always wonders why Chris didn't see this as an opportunity to take out Tony B. He wasn't made. There would be no witnesses, but to quote Tony with Ralphie, 
What sick fuck? So what are you, uh, picking out wedding cakes? Yeah. Hope you have better luck than I did. Why, you didn't like your cake? I think your luck's been fucking great. Listen to you cursing it out. What, you got something you want to say? Powerful final exchange between them. Tony B's glance to Tony after. Subtle, but powerful. Almost kind of like they both knew what was going on. Like they had talked about it, maybe. Or that they were on the inside track of dealing with it already. Again, the power of the writing and the edits. Loved when Figgis said, great writing makes editing easy. This was a case in point of that for sure. A lot of eyes darting around all over the place here. These guys have the makings of great no-look passers on the court, threading defenders every which way. Tony, you got something you want to say? Why didn't Chris just say it right there? I mean, let it rip. What do you have to lose? Chris mocks Tony B. You didn't like your fucking cake? Read that as a tacit play on have your cake and eat it too. They're layering on the wordsmith prowess like icing on the cake to beat the metaphor to death. Chris tells Tony B to call him subtle power play. You call me as opposed to the other way around. Great cut to the view from the cake shop of Chris getting out of the car. Something bad could happen right there. Classic trick. The tension is always there. And that chilling moment is followed by an interesting cutback to Tony B looking through the back of Chris cautiously. Something about the sound and motion right there threw me. Cut to Chris and AIDS. She's moisturizing, inquiring about this Uncle Pat. Chris calls him a knockaround guy, like Tony's dad. But wait, isn't a knockaround guy someone who does the grunt work, believing he'll move up? but regardless of his efforts, will never get the shot? Unless he was talking about Tony B's dad, T's dad most definitely wasn't a knockaround guy. Chris continues, they let him retire because of a disability. But as we'll see later, retirement isn't part of this thing. No spoilers, but there's a discrepancy, which can be summarily explained away by stating the obvious at this point. It's all predicated on bullshit, to quote the show. Chris tells Aid that he and other boys his age will get sent up there around 12 or 13 and Uncle Pat would school them, ostensibly on all things masculine and indoctrinating them into that life. Speaking of masculinity... Where's my Barney's underpants with the ventilated cotton? No, that wasn't a cold cut. That was real. Also... Fuck this guy needs Barney's draws for up there in the country. Then he nods to aid to get his shit out of the dryer. Whatever happened to Gary Cooper? Strong, silent, do-it-yourself type. Chris continues that he was up there once when he was 11. Tony and Tony B were both 19, suggesting an eight-year difference between the two of them and that Tony and Tony B are roughly the same age. Nice little carrot detail. Says he worshipped those two guys, Tony Soprano especially. From elevated celestial worship, he drops to his feet, asks for Tanactin. The product placement in this scene alone is on another level. Chris continues, Tony B does wrong, and Tony lays a 200K a year cash cow on him. 
And then, a great creative choice. The camera's slow approach on aid as she mulls Chris's frustration. Unorthodox for this show, certainly, but an appropriate conveyance that something's coming. Adriana reminds him that if he's so unhappy, they could always leave. For a moment, we forgot about the bifurcation of her life, partially because it's easier to forget and hope things play out for the two of them. It's been five whole seasons of love, more or less, and a wedding is finally imminent. But we're reminded of her agenda, which only reminds us of her invisible FBI handcuffs. and reminds us that this can't end well. But when? And how? And who? Anyway, she says he could pick up his writing or male modeling. I'll get back to the writing someday, he says, but from a position of great wealth. Louis XIV over here. As far as male modeling, he says, I'd probably be as successful, but I wouldn't want to be around those fucking people. The delusions of grandeur is on the nose, no pun intended. But the timing is wonderful. He's subjugated and emasculated by Tony B and Tony. But he props himself up here with the self-talk to get him through the weekend. Whether he believes it or not, we've seen enough of him at this point to think he probably doesn't believe it. But again, it's the things we tell ourselves to get from one moment to the next. But the male modeling, though, Richie April, rest in peace, would certainly beg to differ. Canopy company for Lionel train sets, notwithstanding. I'm a soldier, Adriana. Great line. When are you going to understand that? Ominous. Couple episodes, maybe? Cut to Tony heading to the pool. Cigar, beer, and towel in tow. Memorial Day weekend over here. Only to find the pool drained. Costs a fortune, Carmela explains. To echo Christopher's point, when is she going to understand? Tony's a leader of men. And then a great creative choice. The view up from the bottom of the pool. There's that angle again. What a choice. And what execution. Symbolizing in part, at least, rock bottom. Always wondered, is he mad about the R&R or the ducks? Or maybe a little of both. Inside, they share a great moment. He hems and haws, heaves and hoes, but settles down. Focuses on the kids. Meadows' engagement. Powerful soundbite. Wasn't all bad. Note, He puts three fingers on the laundry basket and the camera locks on it for a beat. Again, the fluctuations. He's not all bad. Cut to Janice at anger management. Hey, she's trying. Couple of regular talkers easily jump into the exercises. Recipe for disaster. But poor Bradley finally gets a turn. Note Janice is fidgety and on the edge of her seat, about to explode, like MJ when he was put on the bench with 15 seconds to play in a consequential game. Mid-story, Jan interrupts him. 
Another guy jumps in with another level of anger. Cold cuts, though, it turns out. He was breaking balls. The writing had us tricked for a second. Production note. What a disproportionately awkward coffee table in the center of all those egos and loose lips. Surprised it hasn't been pummeled by the weight of the air alone in that particular room. Guy with the joke was talking about a commercial. Buffering. More product placement. Long beat on the moderator or doctor or therapist or whatever the fuck. Back to Bradley. Bradley questions why he's in there. His roommate should be in there instead of him. Then the moderator imparts some profound wisdom. This is a true story. There are always going to be things out there that are irritating and annoying and out of your control. What we can control is our response to those triggers. Great advice. Full stop. Diving a little deeper, I found five things that supposedly guide you down this path. And now for the Dr. Justin portion of the program. First, accept responsibility for your reactions. Second, and this gets a little Eckhart Tolle over here, recognize you're having a reaction the moment it arises inside you. Third, identify what is triggering the emotion. This supposedly helps you determine if the threat is real or not. Fourth, choose what you want to feel. Finally, actively change your state of mind. Self-talk, think before you talk, followed by pushing against the urge to say exactly what's on your mind. That last part can be really hard sometimes. He continues, it doesn't make you mad. You make you mad. Again, a lot of wisdom. But like most things, seems so simple. Takes a lot of work in practice. But so much progress in such a concise amount of time, we're thinking. What efficient television. But then, in true Sopranos fashion, Janice goes off the rails. I put all my faith and my hopes into the civil rights movement. I left home and I marched. And for what? So they could ride around in their SUVs blasting that rap shit? And you can't say anything because they might have guns? Wait a fucking minute. Who's they? If the shoe fits. This is fucking priceless. Okay. Mediator guy tells Janice to stop time traveling. Doc Brown over here. Cut to Chris and Tony B. From tense and clenched to calm and idyllic views of the Hudson Valley. Well, Tony B's calm. Christopher's tense as a motherfucker. Note, he's driving. Power dynamic is at stake after all. Tony B puts his feet up. So much for that power dynamic. Chris has a scant stare, a double-down version of the one in the car earlier outside the cake shop. He doesn't want his $50,000 vehicle scuffed up. Who does? Tony B is talking about the legend of Sleepy Hollow. Scared the piss out of him when he was a kid. But for much deeper and traumatic reasons. Certain people, 
used to call him Ichabod Crane growing up. That book came out, believe it or not, in 1820. And apparently the idea for the character, Ichabod Crane, came from a schoolmaster in, wait for it, Kinderhook, New York. Yeah, I said it. Kinderhook, New York. If you know, you know. And if not, I promise there's a connection. Uncle Pat's farm is around Kinderhook, too, for what it's worth. Cut to Tony in therapy. Melfi's trying to dig into stuff with Carmela. You know, build on what you've worked on in previous sessions. Standard fare. But Tony 180s and wants to talk about Janice. So much for patient prep, she's thinking. He tells her she got arrested for aggravated assault and resisting arrest. To be honest, I'm kind of surprised she got out on bail for that offense. Isn't she a flight risk? An asset that could potentially be turned? Oh, wait. Neil Mink was on the case. That's all you need to know. Melfi says that he's mentioned her temper before. And she seems satisfied by this. She's connecting dots like the Steve Jobs speech. Then she continues as if delivering a keynote or commencement of her own. Rage, she says. Depression turned inward. She wants to learn more about the soprano temper. He avoids it but says, bottom line, it's bad for business. John always had a temper. Johnny Soprano, we think, for a split second, but, but why would he refer to his dad by his first name? No, he's referring to John Gotti. Continues, the old guys didn't get mad. They just smiled and nodded and made sure you got it later. Goes to that whole revenge is a dish best served cold idea. Only he says, revenge is like serving cold cuts. This saying has to do with the idea that revenge is sweeter when some amount of time lapses from the act worthy of revenge. If it happens too fast, it loses its luster. The Godfather references this line too. Don Corleone says, revenge is a dish that tastes best when it is cold. Even he didn't quite get it right. But are you going to argue with him? And I love that they took the Don's level one malaprop and made Tony's level two. Melfi pokes and prods. Where does this anger come from that you and your sister share? Root causes over here. Remember those? He doesn't want to talk about Livia. So she pivots. What about your dad? Mentions the finger getting chopped off. Tony regrets telling her that. Why? Why is he about keeping appearances with her at this point, after all this time, after everything they've been through? She course corrects. Stay on subject. Your own intolerance for frustration. That's a tough one to chew on. Also, what did the fact that he dresses up nice when he goes there have to do with anything? Appearances. Facades. Myths. Then he becomes Janice in the anger management class. His version of marching for civil rights is, probably like so many others, by the way, customer service. Your call is important to us. It's all bullshit. Every idea they come up with is supposed to make things better, he says. It actually makes it worse. Melfi agrees. The center cannot hold. That comes from a line from the William Yeats poem, The Second Coming. 
It means that chaos is descending upon the world. Forces that should bring order are failing to do so. These words were written after the First World War, but are timely, even today, especially now. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. There's another line from the poem she recites. She's going off over here. Somebody lay down a beat so she can get in the booth with little Dickie. Hi, I'm Dave. I'm little Dickie. Hi, I'm Dave. Who's Dave? Hi, I'm Dave. One line from the poem that resonated and had ties to the show, for me at least, the darkness drops again. But now I know. Make of that what you will. Importantly, this poem will have weight going into season six, too. So embrace it for meaning and context going forward. Yeats, real quick, was an Irish Nobel Prize winning man of letters. Melfi continues her speech. We live in a time of technological and spiritual crisis, but you feel you're above all of it. For her to be able to say that, you can really see how far they've come and how much she's at the break with convention with Tony to make a point or achieve any kind of breakthrough. If things don't go your way, she continues, instead of merely being disappointed or inconvenienced, you blow. Perfect beat for him to explode on her right there. But he does the opposite. He resigns, relents. He, dare I say, accepts. And that's one of the first steps. He looks away on a long beat. Fidgets with his nose. That's his way of agreeing with her without saying it. Tony won't do anger management classes, but admits the way he feels now can't be good. It wears me out. It wears me out. It wears me out. For so many years and for so many moments, I felt the same thing about this show. Cut to dinner at Uncle Pat's. Remember, he's Chris and Tony B's uncle, but not Tony's. Pat's brother married Livia's sister, Aunt Cantina. Pat's last name is Blendetto. They're outside, under the stars. Louise, his daughter, is quickly remanded to fetch dessert while the guys talk business. Uncle Pat can't remember where the Johnson brothers are buried. Who are the Johnson brothers? There's a nut waiting to be cracked open. Tony B and Chris know where their guy email is, so they get to it. The ball breaking begins. Only Chris isn't the recipient for a change. Tony B is a change-up specialist for the Yankees now. Our bite is already 86% water. His last blood test, he was 65% Zapula. <laughs> when he first heard the term pie in the sky, he volunteered for the 82nd Airborne. <laughs> That's pretty good. On Tony's weight, Christopher learned not how to recover in recovery, but that T was just suppressing his feelings by eating. Dr. Phil over here. He's got the world by the balls, and he acts like everything's a big fucking imposition. Being at the top, he's isolated himself. Yeah, it's just him and his money. That, as their shovels clang on human bone. Perfection. 
Christopher's first kill, Emil Kolar, is excavated. This is the second time he's had to move them. They're thorough, man. That's for sure. Note the great lighting. The wide shot of them under the stars. Lit like a stage play. Midsummer Night's Dream over here. Actually, I'll save the dreams for next episode. This perfigus is more like a page out of Hamlet. Cut to a security guard getting chased down. Gotta say, I look at security guards in a whole new light after the MJ doc. This one, however, isn't one of the lucky ones. There's a bridge. Not a good sign. Ghosts from all the way back to the pilot. Benny and his muscle touch up the guy. He knows about the Vespa shipment from Italy. Benny destroys his leg with a pipe when he won't talk. Ruthless. He relents. Says it was Phil Leotardo and company. Was it really worth it, security guard? Sad to say, security guard might as well be dead. Cut to Christopher doing what he does best. Decimating dead bodies. Here, he's also doubling down as a paleontologist of sorts. Indiana Moltisanti over here. Chris thanks Tony B for the help. They have a moment. You're my little cousin. They've come full circle. But is it without agenda? Is anything anymore? Tony B brings up New York and what happened with Joey Peeps, and he flatly denies it. He lies. More bullshit. And as far as the casino, says he knew people would resent it. Just true. This is his high IQ working overtime. But he says he went away for a long time, stood up for the family, and he's right. But not according to Pauly. Remember Feech? That whole thing about you get points for staying out of the can? Then Chris throws Benny under the bus. This fucking guy. They're shoveling each other with bullshit. And the bullshit count is approaching its episode high. They break the bones into little pieces, toss it into the lake. Maybe that was the Hudson River. Anyway, from one waterway to another, Benny rolls in with news about the Vespas. John has them, after all. To think of how supportive you were of him. The whole little Carmine fiasco. It's fucking payback. He's like James Harden right there. Stirring the pot. Cooking. He also says Sack should be out looking for the real killers. Subtle nod to the OJ cause celeb. Tony sees the permutations. Cheese is coming in next month. Imported provolone. Guess we can kiss that goodbye now too, right? At a very minimum, it's safe to say that if they do get their hands on that cheese, there's going to be holes in it. Then, importantly, Remember when we saw Phil on his left shoulder at the top of the episode? Now we see a luck of the Irish clover, optically, resting on his right shoulder. Balance. Luck versus a curse. Or to conjure up Romeo and Juliet again, a plague on both houses. Tony's anger gets the best of him. It's exacerbated this episode, though. He's usually been much cooler. 
I think Janice pulled him down a hole he usually doesn't travel down. And more than most episodes, the ghost of Livia Soprano is relentless here. Then, perhaps a palate cleanse, we get a crazy cut to Mr. Wegler. Remember him? What's the meaning of this? Ah, Carm, of course. He's flummoxed when he sees her, tries to apologize, and she quickly says, without any provocation whatsoever, I'm going back with my husband, and walks away. The camera choice, the transition, it's been a topic of conversation forever. My thought, whimsical moment, whimsical elements. More importantly, though, why'd she lie? Autopsy's observation here was elegant and spot on. Quote, Carmela voices a thought that is lurking in her subconscious. She will return to Tony. Just when she thought she was out, she pulls herself back in. So we get a weird swipe transition from that to Uncle Pat's. A plaid thermos, a red shed. Could have been a painting on Melfi's wall. Jug of wine. The fucking details. Chris says he's clean and sober. 14 months. What? Lying to his Uncle Pat, too? And in the peace and silence and tranquility of their own personal Winslow Homer painting, a light bulb goes off. And Uncle Pat knows where the Johnson brothers are. We're also nearing the end of the episode, so he better figure it the fuck out fast. The bodies are near where a Swiss colony bottle was turned upside down on one of the fence posts. Italian Swiss colony, now defunct. It was at one point the leading wine producer in California. It's now been folded up and twisted and contorted as a brand somewhere in the ENJ Gallo Winery portfolio of wines. Finally, the long shot pulling back over the water of their little enclave was a beautiful touch. Very appropriate for this Memorial Day weekend, too. Cut to Jumpman 23. I mean, Tony. He's wearing a velour tracksuit, so I got a little ahead of myself there. Housekeeper isn't working out. Janice has an easy solution. Get another one. Tony cold cuts. Two classes already, and you're telling people how to run their life. The two of them together, man. She's got ice skates over her shoulder. Tanya Harding over here. Then she apologizes about this whole fiasco. Admits it's a bad look for the family. Expresses her happiness with anger management. Her progress with anger management. Tony looks equal parts inquisitive and mortified. He counters the only way he knows how. To call bullshit. She doubles down. A lot of anger is self-importance. The lessons in this episode, guys. Her slam dunk, if you will, on the matter is that she feels as if a great sadness is beginning to lift. Is Janice part Ojibwe now? I was waiting for a mention of wind carrying her across the sky next. Isn't it also partially because she knocked out a soccer mom? Instead of just having the feeling of knocking out a soccer mom, 
Isn't it easier to release when you actually released? Hypocrisy. Once again, at every turn. Tony says he's happy for her. No, he's not. He hides behind his coffee as he says it. Note the siren in the background. Then the slow zoom in on his face. Sirens get louder. Dog starts barking and Dolby surround. His head is a continual, constant barrage. It never stops. And neither can we. Back at Uncle Pat's, they're playing cards. Tony pulls up. Note the big red barn behind Tony as he hugs Uncle Pat. Again, past imagery. Chris and his screenwriting side comes to life. Says Uncle Pat was like Johnny Mnemonic with respect to the Johnson brother whereabouts. Now, I've never seen this movie, but I was shocked to learn that it got a 13% on Rotten Tomatoes. Whatever that means anymore. I feel like your baseline default position on any Keanu Reeves movie starts at 50, though. Keanu Reeves, Dolph Lundgren, Ice-T, a first-time director telling a story about cyberpunk dystopia? What could go wrong? Uncle Pat wants Tony to play cards, too. They're playing Pinocle, a trick-taking card game. Doesn't he know, I wondered, that Tony's more of a chess player? Cut to a great long pan of Tony smoking a cigar, quite literally taking in the surroundings. How's Uncle Pat's for anger management, he's thinking. Maybe this was all he needed. Cut to Chris and Tony B, heaving the Johnson brothers into the lake, with Tony presiding over it proudly. Next, we join them to celebrate a job well done at a steakhouse. There's a great long shot from another booth, almost like someone is sitting and watching them clandestinely or something. Tony says Louise seemed fat. More cold cuts. But the other two have their own cold cut at his expense. Tony B says the same joke about Louise that he said about Tony, and Chris gets a kick out of it. First time we've seen him laugh, I think. More jokes. Philly cheesesteak ones. To which I always thought, Philly cheesesteaks are nothing to joke about. Looks like Tony concurs. Says, the fuck's so funny about that? Doesn't even make sense. Clearly, Tony doesn't like fat jokes. So he turns it around into breaking Chris's balls. But now he can't take it. He's wound up, despite all that laughter release. Tony tells him to have a drink already and shut the fuck up about it. Tells him to order a bull shot. That's a Bloody Mary with beef broth instead of tomato juice. The twangy music in the background to round out the silences and beats is perfect. Next, they turn to his car, Schwarzenegger's Hummer. Of course, that's a reference to Arnold's choice of the Humvee for his daily driver. He was actually the principal reason the manufacturer came out with a civilian model. The brand as we know it is now defunct, and GM, who owns the brand, was recently working on an electric version to be released by their GMC line. But the pandemic has pushed that product out indefinitely, like so many other things. More cultural ball breaking. A reference is made to Bill Clinton, most likely. All the shit Chris was saying to Adriana, 
It's like they're kids all over. Later that night, cut to a TV. Back pain infomercial. Subtle nod to Big Pussy, perhaps. Tony's flipping channels, finds a dock on Port Newark, of all things. Learns about how crate containers aren't being inspected. About 98% of them, at least. Checking everyone, the documentary alleges, would stop global commerce. Thanks to recent events, we now know of another thing that stops global commerce. Tony is conflicted here. He wants to be able to take advantage of weaknesses in the port's security, but he certainly doesn't want Al-Qaeda to be able to take advantage of weaknesses in the port's security. He finds himself on the same side of the coin, if you will, and he very much does not like that. Cut to breakfast at Pat's. What a spread. Tony's still all worked up about how the ports are compromised. And again, he's one of the reasons they're compromised. Too rich. Tony B makes a fat joke about T's appetite. And T again takes it in stride. He's eased up a lot on that compared to the beginning, if you'll remember. Amongst family, I guess. There's a big difference. Chris, however, is done. Says he's got to go. Says goodbye to Uncle Pat. He's tired of all the ball breaking. Uncle Pat calls him a tough guy as he walks out. And from that, we cut to his watery eyes in the car. He wells up. It's a beautiful, powerful moment that we get to spend with him. What's he thinking about? Youth? His arc? You can't put your arms around a memory? Cut to a girl on the pole at the bing. How's that for solidly unsentimental? Vito's looking on, almost in disgust. Hmm. Tony and Tony B walk in bearing gifts. Tony's still talking about the ports. Autopsy provided another great capstone here. The current port situation's good for him as a mobster, but it's bad for him as an American. That thought bridges us to the Soprano writers giving us yet another commentary on the state of the world back in 2004. Paulie's talking about the administration handing out non-competitive building contracts to their friends. Paulie says that we can all relate to that. And in a subtle or maybe not so subtle way, Chase is likening the Sopranos to bare-knuckled political operatives. The dirtiest of comparisons but executed effortlessly and elegantly. Then Georgie. That's why you got to live for today. Even Georgie this episode is able to proffer good advice. And even the calm of Kinderhook couldn't hold Tony back. He beats him within an inch of his life and take it easy is the best they can all offer up. The casualness of it is too much sometimes. Cut from that torrent of anger to the root of all of it. Livia's house. Polly's there to see him. Update him on Georgie. Girl comes down. A new girl. Dermatology nurse. If you'll remember, it's the same nurse that was present when Tony was having a mole removed a few episodes ago. George has got permanent hearing loss in one ear. Tony looks sad, reaches into his pocket and hands a truckload of cash to make sure he gets the best. Polly digs in, says Georgie's quitting, and doesn't want Tony to see him. 
Right in that moment, Tony eyes the money. Polly grips it tighter. Always wondered if he actually followed through with Georgie or if he kept it for himself. At a minimum, I feel like he took a cut. Cut to Carm talking to Roe about what happened with Wegler. This was an editing decision that I wondered about because of the brevity of the scene. But looking back, I think that in its brevity, much was accomplished. And that is that communication between Carmela and Roe, Roe knew about Wegler at the beginning. And this was a wonderful way to sort of bookend that and remind us of that dynamic and remind us of the fact that Carmela was not operating alone. She had a co-conspirator or a partner in crime, if you will. Cut to Jan spinning a salad. Tony walks in, watches her encounter with Sophia, who wants Hawaiian punch before dinner. To Tony, Jan managed that scenario like Mahatma Gandhi. Of course, that's a reference to nonviolent protesting. And very interesting that his name was mentioned at the beginning of this scene, which is one of the most violent and devastating scenes of the series, verbally and physically. A telemarketer calls, and for a minute, we feel like Tony's going to blow. But again, Janice manages it. But part of me always felt like that call triggered something back in Melfi's office. The bit about customer service lines. At dinner, Bobby's talking about a G5 with 64-bit architecture. That was a Mac back in the day. Jan says computers are so cheap you can buy them for 500 bucks at Costco. Still can. But the G5 started out around 2K. Closer to 3000 in today's dollars. And the enclosure design was so popular or effective for Apple that they used it for seven years. One of the longest living designs in Apple's history. In tech, seven years can be three or four product iterations. It's pretty incredible. Tony sees that she's trying. That she's fronting. Something. He can't stand it. And then... Wonder where Harpo's eating his Sunday dinner. What? Just wondering what Harpo's up to. Who's Harpo? That's Hal. We learned that Harpo, who now goes by Hal, was named after Phoebe Snow's song. Not Harpo's song, but Harpo's blues. Interestingly, Snow spent the last part of her life in Bergen County, New Jersey and turn to Buddhism. Though we never see Harpo, Hal, Tony colors him in even more for us. It's French-Canadian, half. So many layers to Harpo. I wonder what's French-Canadian for. I grew up without a mother. Right there. That's Tony saying, you can't grow up in the same house I did, have the same mother I did, have the same lot in life I did, and change. You can't evolve and grow and shed that skin. I won't let you. In a way, though, he's intellectually aware enough to know. Maybe it's all that time put in with Melfi. Maybe it's enough internal reflection that the deep down stuff, buried away and locked up, the stuff in our innermost cauldrons, can always be stoked and rise to the surface and explode. Tony's intellectually aware that those triggers exist. Janice, unfortunately, hasn't quite internalized the lessons of her anger management. 
You can't control what other people do to you, but you can control how you react and respond. Creatively, we get a slow zoom in on Janice. Her facade is cracking. The center cannot hold. It's all bullshit. Everything. It's all bullshit. Janice is high and mighty. Bullshit. Tony B giving a shit about Chris and vice versa. It's all bullshit. Carmela to Wegler. Bullshit. Pauly to Tony about Georgie. Probably largely bullshit. The nurse saying she had a thing at one. Largely bullshit. Bobby's love for Janice? Bullshit. Wants to be close to the boss. He's like that one guy in Game of Thrones, the man with 20 daughters. He marries them off to lords so he can have clout with King's Landing. Same thing. All bullshit. Tony's French accent. Straw that breaks the camel's back. Janice goes at him with a fork, like Livia did to a young Tony in Down Neck. Symmetry. Tony's smile and the way he walks off like Apollo Creed after knocking down Rocky in one, going back to his corner to watch. Timing his pace with the downbeat of a drum on an outro track by the Kinks, a live version of I'm Not Like Everybody Else. Great extension of the shot, watching him walk out of their house, cross-cut, hands in pockets, over the lyric, I don't take all that they hand me down and make out a smile though I wear a frown. Turns right and walks to black. It isn't one of his greatest moments, but it's relatable. For some reason, we are biologically predisposed to hurt the people we love the most. In the immediate aftermath, it gives us some twisted satisfaction. We know it's wrong. And a chunk of it probably has to do with dependency. Here, Tony wants reassurance that the two of them are inexorably linked for better or worse. And he got it. Once she reverted back to the mean, he whistled down the lane like a kid from the neighborhood alongside those kids dribbling a basketball next to him. Could have been a young Carl Anthony Towns there, just saying. Content that the only world he knows, the only world he can be in, wasn't mutable. Not as long as he was around to say anything about it, at least. The line, I'm not like everybody else, takes us to black. Tony's not like everybody else. But we've said it since the beginning. He's a piece of all of us. There's an aspect of him that each of us manifests every day. Those of us that keep coming back to him. So he might not be like everybody else, but we're all a bit like him. That's all I got. See you next time. Here's me and Lorenzo catching up.
Lorenzo, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Vic. Thanks for doing this. I want to start off by saying you are the reason, the solution to me getting Drea De Mateo on the podcast. So I'm I very love thankful her. I love and appreciative her. of that. It was one of the best episodes we did. She's a fantastic human, and it couldn't happen to a better person for you. Well, I appreciate it. It was awesome, and it meant a lot. I got to go to her house, and it was a crazy, surreal experience. So thank you for making that happen. For listeners, I think you and I have been, we've been friends over the past year. We've hung out a few times. Sure have. We met through our mutual friend, Nate. Hey, Blonde. Love you, buddy. Where's Butch? We talked Sopranos a little bit, and I know you're a fan. Yes. So I kind of want to do two things today. I want to catch up because it's quarantine time, and we haven't seen each other in a while. Um, And then we'll just shoot the shit on this episode, Cold Cuts. In particular, I remember specifically you requesting this episode. I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. But first... How are things? How have you been staying upbeat and focused? Um, I've been actually really fortunately blessed. Um, I've been in quarantine in a, in a, in a, in a home solo. Um, and been, I've, been never, I've never been as busy as I am right now. Like a lot of things are ramping up. Um, and I can't be more... Uh, humbled and and honored to be around the people that are like supporting me and backing me and and the early believers i've you know been really working hard on paradise city that's like you know been like the main focus we were about to sell the show Paradise City is a show that you've been working on for a while. Yep. You just released the trailer. The trailer blew up on YouTube. Yep. It's got 11 million views in 20-something days. And Drea's in that show. Drea's, Drea DiMatteo, she plays Maya. She's an agent. You know, uh, uh, She's a music agent on the show. Uh, we have Bella Thorne. We have Cameron Boyce, the late Cameron Boyce. Sadly, he passed away. He plays opposite of me as my friend growing in the series. He plays Perry Reeves' son, which is, um, you know, very sad that we lost him. He was a wonderful human. And, uh, you know, um, I know that, you know, he's, he was uh, one of the, you know, the major carriers. He, he, he brought it on the, as far as his chops, he brought it on the show. And he was a rising star. You know, he was, uh, he was, a, he was a beautiful kid. Like, uh, uh, you know, it's uh, these guys that are grow that they grow up in like Disney and 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 they 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 are popular at such a young age. You'd expect them to be, you know, like it's very hard to tell, you know, what kind of personality they have and what kind of characters developed within all those years. This kid was the most genuine, given, kind to every single person equally with everything. It was the the that that to me said a lot about his character. And that's what really broke my heart when he died was the kid was just the, the the best kid in the world. There was not one like snarky moment in his, you know, like he didn't get his trailer. I, you know, like nothing, not one thing. So was he featured heavily in the show? Sure. He's he. Yeah. He's, so how are you guys pivoting away from that? What's the plan? Well, I mean, you know, we haven't really talked about it because we we shot the whole show, you know, and. We have so all the episodes are in the can. All the episodes are in the can, um, and independently wow, financed. Independently financed. I've never. That's uncommon, right? To do a whole show and then try to sell it. Nobody's done it before. I was just so it's unprecedented. We haven't done it. Nobody. I mean, people have done it on a lower level as far as high maintenance was doing it, like at two thousand dollars an episode, and you know, I, I you know. 
people that obviously could go make that happen. And uh, you know, but the production value that we have and the cast that we have, it's never been done as far as financed independently, shot in LA. We have all of the, the the production value and highest like the high aesthetics of this city, mm -hmm. and and you know, we've done that you know independently, and it's been a fucking rhyme. And we have the top of the we have everyone that's been hired to to help us get this through the finish line has been top of the notch, a list you know post production houses, a list editors, a list everyone that we could possibly get through our relationships being good. Having good friends and 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 it's been it's been it's showing on the screen, and we're going to have success. I could just feel it because of you know the the, the buzz on the trailer and what we have and how much love has been put into it. It's been a year and a half of fucking pure grind. I feel like right now buyers are actually going to be kind of hyped about having a finished product, right? As kind of twisted as this sounds, like does being in the pandemic actually help your situation? In in theory, maybe, but so if you look at it like this, we've only been shut down for two months. Yeah. In theory, in theory, right? Netflix, Hulu, you know, FX, HBO, they have millions of shows that are shot in pro, in post. They they were the only things that are being held up are the ones that were gonna go in August or go start shooting in Principal June. Photography. The, anything principal photography wise, or the ones that were in shooting motion right now like movies that were all shows that were in production and then they got put to a stop those are the ones that are going to be the ones that are kind of like what do we do what do we do when we get back to normal living the new normal we'll be shooting back we'll be shooting those shows again mm. all those movies i don't think the content thing is yeah in theory sounds like hopefully the best thing is that what our strategy was, and that's why I really enforced it, and I was really like eager and happy about it that we executed it and it worked out. Is everyone was home, no one had time to to, to avoid watching a teaser. That's why it was like we got to put out the teaser now, create the hype, and then back everything into finishing the show, present it to CAA because they're the ones you know who are setting prepping it, yeah. and go. So um, that helped. In, in ways, but I, I, you know, I don't think, you know, maybe it could be in, in a month from now, maybe it could be, you know, people could be like, yo, this is, this is brutal. We don't have anything to shoot. And, uh, where, where, you know, this is, this is, this is like, uh, you know, we don't have anything to shoot. Um, and we need something for our, our, you know, for, for us to air for our, for our schedule. And, and this is perfect. That could happen, you know, like that could happen. We don't know because, but I mean, so many shows are in post. So many, you know, the only thing that 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 are probably left questionable is the the pilots that got greenlit and now they got shut down during this pandemic. That oh, like this was right after pilot season. All these shows were all these potential shows pilots that yo we, we love the script. You know, let's see how the pilot is and then we'll order a series. Those are the ones that are kind of like like what's gonna happen. I'm assuming because they still got to finish shooting those or still whatever. I don't know how much of it's done. So I think that that's where we're at, you know, but we do have, you know, a lot, a lot. We're, we're in a better position of, uh, of being in this pandemic, having a fully done in the can, fully edited TV show. That's an hour. We have an hour show that is completely done and a cast that the proof is on the pudding. 
you know, like the eyeballs that we got on a trailer of some of the, on a teaser, not even a trailer. The teaser has some more eyeballs than a lot of huge shows, you know, that, that their first season or their first, you know, so we're, sure. we're very fortunate that we were very strategic on that. And, yeah. you know, we're very grateful that we have a cast that has, you know, a lot of following and we were able to position how we promoted it and how we got all these people to, 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 to witness the show. And to witness that there's an actual, and we have a fan base because it comes from, you know, it's a backstory of a, of a of an independent film that we've done before that called American Satan. It's a somewhat of a backstory that the band continues on. So oh, there's, so there's there, pre-existing there was a, there, IP. Yeah, it's a pre-existing IP that there's that there's there's a fan base, and now that fan base, you know, is even more amplified and because of the new cast. Like there, there was a small, it was it was it wasn't the cast that we have now is on a whole nother level than what we had for American Satan. And, you know, it, and it's pretty much very the same origin of just it's a rock rock and roll TV show with some supernatural elements. You know, it's, it's Riverdale, Empire, Nashville, Entourage. That's Paradise City. The title, first thing I thought of, I'm sure a lot of people in my age group thought of, was Guns N' Roses. Is there any connection? Um, ironically... It, it there is a connection and and it's and it's and it's and it's kind of cool because so it was originally called when the music's over when ash first wrote the pilot a long time ago before we even did anything else we were working on like yo how do we you know we're music guys how do we get in this game it's like five six years ago we had no idea what we were doing for those that don't know ash is the ash alvison he's the creator of uh of uh paradise city and he's the director and the writer and you know he's you know, the owner of Samaria Records. His his dad is John G. Avelson, who directed Rocky. Rocky, Karate Kid, two, three, and Rocky Five, and uh, Lean on Me, which is one of my all time favorites. Great one. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to meet his pops before you know he passed away. So you know we we lost him two two and a half three years ago, and I uh, so Ash um, he had he had different versions and. Then there was like a time that we wanted to, that he was like, yo, why don't we name it Paint It Black, you know, which is like a stone song and blah, 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 blah. And Tom Zutat, who found Paradise City, I mean, who found Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue, he's the A&R. Tom Zutat was, was played by, um, what's the guy's name on the Dirt movie? I forgot the guy's name, but he's a, he's a well-known actor, played Tom Zutat's character mm. in, the, in, in the movie The Dirt. But Tom Zutat found, Motley Crue found... Uh, Dokken found, you know, uh, Guns N' Roses. He, he used to be with Elektra and uh, and I believe Capital. But Tom Zutat helped write something on episode two and three, I believe. And he's a he's a good friend of Ashes, and he's the one that said, "Why don't we just call it Paradise City?" So there is a connection because he's the one that awesome. found Guns N' Roses. So there is like this weird, um, you know, not weird. It's actually kind of like symbolic, synchronistic. And it helps too. And it helps. Why, oh, not, cool. be, why not be associated with yeah. that great yeah. era, that great album, that great song? Yeah. Last question on this. I'm a nerd, as you probably already well know. You're not a nerd. Explain the, I'm biz- a nerd. Explain the business to me of making the whole show. Like, what's the strategy? As far as independently or? Yeah. Okay. So financing it independently and then going to a distributor. What was the thought process? It sounds like you're changing the game a little bit. Um, okay, so 
we are uh, an independent film production company, record label. So that, that's where part of the financing comes from. You know, we could, from Ash's side. From Ash's side. Okay. And pretty much, who, who was gonna sit there and go pitch a music TV show to all these networks with a script and a bible? Like seventy-five other hundred producers and writers that have to go do that too at this time, which is very hard when two music shows like Vinyl and Roadies failed. So now you're coming in with unknown writers, unknown directors, unknown producers saying, Vinyl "Hey, man," headed by Terrence Winter. Yes, and fucking Scorsese. God, I mean Scorsese, Mick Jagger, Terrence Winter. I mean you got monster icons that are just fantastic at everything they do. And vinyl was actually awesome. I thought it was fun. You know what I mean? I I I enjoyed it, but it just didn't work for whatever reason. And Roadie's the same thing. I I I didn't watch Roadie, so I don't know. So I know it was Cameron Crowe, and that was that was real. You know what I mean? Like they they that was Showtime. Yeah. Showtime, HBO, you think that these, these shows would work. So with that mindset, it was very tough for any of us to wrap our heads around like, oh, we're never going to get a shot. And who the hell are we? So Ash was like, yo, we're going to go do it independently. And, you know, we're going to show that we can do this and tell, tell a, a, we can really change the game for a rock and roll TV series. And wanted me involved and, you know, I was all about it because we both come from music. We both, he used to be my agent. Um, so we, he brought me on as a writer and executive producer to oversee creative and help him, with, you know, like just help write, you know, ride that, that path with Tom. Tom was a, he's a writer on two episodes as well. And, um, you know, that was I think we started really weighing in on finishing the episodes in August of 20, 2018. We started shooting November of 2018. We finished, we wrapped right before the holidays, and then we had to do pickups for like two more different sh- uh, sets of, of dates because we were missing, we were just, every day we were trying to do seven pages a day, which is, for people that, are, uh, that doesn't understand filmmakers, filmmaking, Seven pages a day is pretty much unheard of. You're not shooting seven pages a yeah. day. It's it's brutal, and that's what we were averaging, and we were fucking making ourselves crazy. We were doing 17-hour days, going into overtime. It was just insane. The union just j- kills you for their fees, and it's just brutal because, you know, when you're independently financing it, the union don't care. They're not like, well, we're going to give you a break because you're you're independently financing. So we were suffering in, in, in a lot of ways of trying to cram a lot of the shooting schedule into these you know, were all these the time written frames. in advance? So were you shooting yeah. multiple? What is it called when you shoot crossboarding? In a sense, we did because Ash directed every episode. So we shot everything as a big independent f- feature, like four movies, okay. and then and that and you know, like the, in theory, because crossboarding is also you know they, they got different directors and different you know like it's just different. Different directors probably shooting at the same scene, same place. That's why they, you know, they do one, two, and three episode, episode one, two, and three at the same time because, you know, you know, I, you know, I, I haven't even been involved with a, a cross-boarding situation, but I'm assuming that's what it is because, you know, they they block out these three episodes to shoot, and now you have one director sh- is doing two episodes, and then another director is doing the other one, and on that same day they're 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 they're, they're crossing the directors. Like I mean, they gotta. If we if there's two scenes that are shot in this same room and it's 
completely on two different sides of the of, of the series. But one director's got his scene here, and then one director's got another director's got his scene here. They shoot them both out that same day. So that's what I'm assuming really is the term of why it's crossboarding, you know. Mm. But but Ash directed every episode, and then when he acted, I helped him as well as Jeff, you know, like try to get him to, you know, because it's a lot directing and writing and producing and acting and all that shit all in one shot. It was it, yeah, it, we were out too. of our fucking minds, man. The pro the process is so insane to get to where we got to as far as writing it. All right, we got eight episodes. Initially, we had six, and then it just turned into eight because we had to. We we extended the shooting schedule. We shot thirty nine days, averaging sixteen hours a day. Pretty much, I don't know. I think we did over a thousand hours just on shooting. It was insane. It was just to finish shooting principal. And luckily, but I, I didn't go back to Cameron Boyce. You know, he's up there looking over us. We didn't need him for ADR. ADR, all his lines nailed him. Wow, how crazy is that? That's rare. Because yeah. every actor came yeah. in for ADR. Yeah, three times. Yeah, Drea, poor Drea, she had to come in four times. Mark Boone Jr. Everybody, Ryan, Ryan Hurst, everybody had to come in more than once. Bella Thorne. You know, uh, and 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 uh, you know, we got Hobson. We got a, you know, he he came in twice, I believe. So we were lucky. So the process of getting from writing it to 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 to, to we ain't we ain't saying no now. We got it. We're shooting. Let's go. Because the process is, if you got the money, you can do whatever you got to do. Yeah. If you got the money, you got the right team, then you can start. But you got to do it fast because if time is money. Once the clock starts rolling, right? That's the idea. Behind if you the go over an hour, you, it's ten thousand an hour. Yeah, yeah. It's insanity. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, that's on a low. That's low. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, I, it, it could be more. You know, just depending on how you know, like these, they, they, there's these uh, meal penalties, fucking lunch. You know, like you got to get, you know, like if you're over a minute on a meal, pe- like it's crazy union rules. That you know, that's why you get in the union, and that's why you get a great pension plan and retirement plan. That, you, you know that yeah. that's that's what it's for. So it's it's good, and and and, and you know, I'm in the union as my, uh, myself. You know, I'm SAG, so that's you know, I respect union laws, but it just it just also when you're on the other side of it, it makes you see it when both you ways. when you're on the other side of it, and you're fucking you know, it's coming, and you could feel the stress on being on set every day, and then oh. It's just costing another what? What the fuck? And then you're trying to stay creative. It's like really interesting. It's a whole crazy chaotic world to get it from the script to casting. So we were writing and casting at the same time. We were calling it the casting couch, me and Ash. Like, yo, what about this scene? And he's writing and I'm like, yo, what about this? What about that? And I was like, yo, we gotta get we gotta call Drea. We gotta get Drea's manager on the phone. We gotta, oh yo, let's get Drea. Oh, let's oh oh or oh, 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 yo, she's perfect. Let's get Feruza Bulk. You know what I mean? Like, and then we would call up and we would stop writing, call, you know, get like we we were out of our fucking minds, bro. Cause we were so hungry. But you were doing it. You were doing we it. We did were, it all. Yeah. That's sick. Me and that sick fuck. Yeah. <laughs> me and me and me, and me and we're two sick fucks. How many fucks? episodes? Ten episodes? Eight episodes. Eight episodes. Sick fucking right Averaging now. forty minutes an episode and without any without being overly optimistic. You think we'll see it in twenty twenty? Absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely. 
Congratulations. Best Thank of you. luck on it. Look forward to following its trajectory and success. I watched Thank the you. teaser. Looked awesome. Appreciate um, that. And it's even more amazing given the backstory about how it was independently financed and just you guys just yeah. are telling your story and you're not we were lucky enough to 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 be from this world so we're 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 we act in it we're writing in it we're producing it but we're not we're not we're not guys trying to write a movie about a carnival you right. know what i mean right, right. we're writing about the music business where we lived and which helps and, a lot and we i was in a touring band for 10 years so my world in the show is very similar to it's very based on my my old band and, you know, Ash's world is based on his life, too. A lot of different versions of his life as a record label owner, as a manager, as a, as a, as a young kid coming up as a promoter, which is Cameron Boyce's character. His mom, Perry Reeves, like, like moving out to California, having the, 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 his dad being the, 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 the big director that, that they didn't have a relationship. And that's real. That's real. And, uh, you know, I don't know if we could talk about that. But... Uh, I don't know. It's it, it, pretty much, I mean, yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's, it's not like he's hiding it. But, um, yeah, he didn't have a relationship with his dad until the last two years of, of his dad's life, which was a beautiful moment. And uh, it's kind of based on that character who pretty much was, he's the big record mogul of the the uh, of uh, like the the I, Jimmy Iovine in the show, he's the big like major label exec that doesn't you know has disconnected from his son, and this was a big, big thank you to Rob Weiss. That was his, you know, his insight on giving that to us. Like you need that to be the engine of your show. Mm. That was a big fucking thank you to my brother Rob. I love you. You do you did that. I remember it clearly, we, and, and me, him, and Ash sitting at the Soho house, and he was like, that's what you're missing, is that where that kid's going. He wants to be meet his dad or be his dad or, you know. Interesting. That was, yeah, that was, a big, that was a big, big change, and we were like, whoa, you know. Did Ash get to share that with his dad? His dad passed already. Okay. But his dad was an executive producer on American Satan, which was a fucking cool mm cool thing to have together and um his dad was him and his dad tried to co-direct but the dga because ash wasn't dga didn't allow it and ash couldn't get the, the 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 dga in the dga through that and they just said it was too complicated but that was him and his dad was i mean obviously his dad was a lot older he was about i think he was already 80 or 979 or 81 at the time it was going to be hard for him to direct, but you know, was, Ash was like, you know, for him to just hand over notes and ideas. Like his dad was really good at a lot of the notes that 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 are very pivotal moments in the movie. That was Ash's dad giving great notes to uh, his son, and that 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 to me was a beautiful ending. You know, like awesome. like like yeah. he connected with his dad two years before he passed away, and that was the way his dad, you know, made amends. You know, and you know they 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 became one together. And I and I had dinner with them, which was fucking, you know, I could, I mean, his dad directed some of the best movies of all time. Absolutely, Rocky is yeah. the one of the. It's like the top three. There is no fucking better movie. Did than you that. watch uh, Sly? Do I the, I got the, a, I got abused by it. Speaking of Sly, I'm wearing the Rambo shirt. Yeah, Go to Sly it. Stallone shop, guys. SlyStalloneShop.com. Um, <laughs> him talking about the movie. I I've seen the movie nine thousand times, but there was something so different about him. Like he would lean in in certain moments. 
and he talked about the musical stabs when Adrian's about to go into into Rocky's apartment. Right. He got emotional. Like he got emotional like four times. I mean, that was the moment. And and I was just like, I was so blown away. My wife got mad at me because she's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I'm watching Rocky on Facebook." She's like, "You've seen Rocky like ten thousand times." I'm like, "No, no, no. This is different." Yeah. He's doing something different. Nate was giving me shit that I missed it because I was working, and yeah. Nikki was giving me shout out to Nikki C. Uh, um, was they both were like, "Are you watching?" I'm like, "No, I, I can't watch it." I was like, "Is it just live now? Like it'll be gone? I can't watch it again." Like I don't maybe think you can watch it again. Oh, I think it's gone. Fuck. I think it was a one time thing. He did it for charity or something. That's insane. But that's that's ironically dad. his dad, Ash's dad. Was the one director that says I'm gonna I'm gonna bank on him as a star, and that was the, one of the smartest moves ever made. Exactly, amazing, love it. Um, we're gonna talk Sopranos, I promise. There's one last thing I want to hear from you sure, though. Man. I know offhand about your Game of Thrones experience. I'm a huge oh Game yeah, of Thrones fan. Let's, let's get uh, into before that. we jump into stuff about the episode proper. Tell me your Game of Thrones finale story. How did it come about? Um, you were in the finale in that final scene yeah, at King's Landing, the yeah, final I battle. Flea bottom with Aaron Rodgers. You were there with Aaron Rodgers. Tell the story. This is pretty epic. Um, so Dave and Dan are good friends of mine, like really good friends of mine, and they 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 early believers, and they show me a lot of love, and um, we we talked at lengths of you know me going out there, and he, they 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 would say, oh, a lot of friends of ours say they want to come, but they never want to come and shoot and and be in the show, but you actually did it. I go out there, you know, I was excited. I was nervous to bother and ask, yo, can I, you know, is it, you know, like, like a follow up in any way? And they're like, of course, bro, come on. This is our last fucking season. Like, like, uh, you know, get out here. Um, and it got, it got set up and I, and I flew out there and I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea. I just knew that this was epic and I'm going to just fucking, I don't know what I'm going to do. I just had no idea. I just knew that this was my favorite show. You know, like, there is nothing better than Game of Thrones and Sopranos as far as story and a phenomenon, you know? <laughs> like, there's True. nothing. Phenomenon's the word. <laughs> there's nothing. Both of them are phenomenons. Yeah. And um, I, uh, I'm out there, and uh, I get picked up to go meet, to go to set, and I'm like in Belfast and I've never been to Ireland, although I've toured the entire world for 10 years and lived in Austria, never been to Ireland because my band just was never, never, we never did, like Ireland's a very hit or miss scene for metal. It does good, but, you know, even like bands like ours, it wasn't, you know, we would never play there, but I, that's a whole nother ironic story. I'll tell you that's weird because I thought we weren't popular there, but um, I'll get to that. Um I go to set and I'm put together with this other American dude and I'm just hanging out with him the whole time. I had no idea who he was. He's got an assistant. I'm like, why is there an assistant with this guy? Okay, cool. I don't know. We're hanging out. We're, we're, we're wardrobe. We're in... It's fucking massive. It's massive. The production was just... I mean, there was a thousand people in this tent for King's Landing flea bottoms that were just like the background. It was insane. And I'm with this guy and, and, and all the girls were doing my makeup and they were like, oh, we love your accent. We love your accent. Oh, oh, oh. And I'm like, hey, you know what? And he's like, who is this fucking guy? And I'm like talking to this kid, have no clue who the fuck he is. 
And he's like, yeah, you know, my girl's coming over, blah, blah, you know, my, I flew my girl out to him. I'm like, that's sick, man. I was like, yo. And then, and then I was told by um, one of the PAs was like, oh, you guys got a trailer to go put your stuff in and you can go, you can go hang out. But she was referenced, she was talking to me because I guess they, you know, because the, 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 they know me, they're my boys. And they knew that, you know, look out for Lorenzo, whatever it was. I don't know. She came to me and I was like, yo, come on, let's bring you, let's, let's go in the trailer. I said, tell your girl, put a bag. I had no idea who they were. His girl was Danica Patrick and that was Aaron Rodgers. You had no idea I who he was? I fucking had no clue. And I did not care who. So I you was don't like, watch football? No, I don't. I, if it's not the Giants or the Jets, I don't care. Interesting. You know what I, mean? I didn't have no, I had no clue. He must have loved that though. He was, but this gets, it gets better. So. He's we're hanging out, and I have no clue. And I'm just like, yo, what are we doing? Let's go get coffee. Let's go here. Let's go there. And they were like, hey man, you can come and like, let's go, let's go, let's go. I was like, it was a great vibe all day. Then I see people bringing footballs up, and then I'm like, and, and he's signing them, and I'm like, yo, bro, what do you do? He's like, oh, I'm the I'm the I'm the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers. I said I gave him a fucking elbow. I said, hey, me too. I said I should have been a fucking football player. I was big in the fucking streets. I used to play tackle in the streets like a knucklehead. Yo, let's go get a, let's go smoke a cigarette. And he was like, this fucking guy does not give two fucks. And he was fucking following. Yo, where we going? Let's go hang out. And uh, so and even the name didn't register with you nah, when he said I had Aaron Rodgers. No wow, clue. that's incredible. no clue. Never seen this guy in my life. Wow. No, and 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 but I did you know who Danica was? No. I had no clue who either one of them were. Not one clue. And how did she feel about that? She didn't, she was cool. We she was were, cool we were talking, she's like, she's from Chicago. Yeah. She, I was like, hey, we're like cousins because you're from Chicago, from New York, you know, blah, blah. And he's like, does that really make sense? If you, I'm like, yeah, if you, you, you're like cousins that don't hang out. What the fuck? Yeah, it makes sense. And we were just joking around in our tent, in the trailer. Um... And then he was like, yo, Dave and Dan were looking for you, man. You know, like, he, I was like, oh, cool, man. Those are my boys. Don't worry about it. Let's go. You know, like, I was just so excited and energized about being there. And I didn't know who he was. And I was just excited that Peter Dinklage was, we were talking, me, Dave, Dan, and Peter on, like, one of the most epic scenes of the finale when, when, when like, um, when uh, she's doing the speech, like they were shooting that when she's doing the like the ending when 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 uh, um, um, Danny's Danny. fucking talking and uh, like she's like fucking the epic fucking ah, blah, 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 and she's speaking that fucking yeah. her the, the Targaryen and 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 and, uh, and and he's staring or he he comes out and he takes the pin. It was like one of those where like the the, the reaction shots of him to a green screen. I remember we were sitting there. And he, and he was hearing me talk. He's like, it feels so fucking good to hear a fucking New York accent because they've been in an island. And, and I'm like, yo, this mother, he's from Jersey. I'm like, that's right. Brilliant fucking, brilliant fucking uh, English accent. And, you know, we shook hands and that was cool. And, uh, and, and I was just so hyped and excited about all that, all those moments. You know, I had a really long hangs with uh, Dave and Dan, and what's your relationship to them? Uh, how do you guys know each other? Did you work? We just we just working out at the gym. Oh, nice. Yeah, and I went to Vegas uh, one time with them for UCFC fight. Now we go out all the time. We go to, you know, uh, uh, Rob McAnally's house with his wife. You know, for the guys from uh, um, uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia creators like they just invite me all. You know, they invite me out with them, and it's it's epic, man. So it was a notch above being. For, uh, to say the least, it was a notch above being just an extra. You were with 
Like, had you not been you, you probably wouldn't have been hanging with Aaron Rodgers. Oh, hell no. No, <laughs> yeah, they, they yeah. paired us together yeah, yeah, to exactly be in this, this saving these women scene while these all these explosions that happen while Arya's on this one or while the dragon's blowing through the, all of King's Landing. Yeah. She's, she's, she's going to kill Cersei's and she's on a mission and all these people blowing up and we're, we're in one of those scenes. And, um... What was uh what was uh what was I going with that? Um but they they um uh, before I forget, um another epic piece of this. Oh well let me let me let me not get sidetracked. So we we like it's an epic I'm there for five days, running in Belfast, I'm like like hanging out there and then you know the 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 Aaron Rodgers He's leaving, but we didn't get to say goodbye. But I'm, 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 his driver was like, come here, come here, big fucking, like a, look like a, like a, like a hooligan, like a big soccer fucking rug, like a rough motherfucker. He's like, come here, come here. And he's listening to my band in the fucking, in, in, in the car. And I'm like, and he's like, I know who you are. I'm like, yo, that's fucking cool, man. I was like, oh shit. I felt like, yo, I haven't been in Europe in so long. We were popular there, but we weren't like huge, but we did well. What was the name of your band? Sworn Enemy. You know, we were like a metal hardcore band from Queens. And uh, for those of you who know, you know, you know, hardcore band, you know, Agnostic Front, Madball, Chromex, you know what I mean? That's that, that's like a hardcore scene. That's hardcore music, you know, um, from New York City. You know, it's like a underground, Bad Brains is from D.C., but like, like the, that, that's the origin of, you know. Were you born in New York City? I was born in Brooklyn, East Brooklyn. New York. Yeah, St. Mary's Hospital. Ironically, the same hospital as Biggie Smalls mm. in East New York. Amazing story. Really quick to tee that to, to finish that story. We we didn't talk to say goodbye. Yeah. Rob, I tell Rob about the whole experience. He's like, yo, our boy Luke is good friends with him. Luke didn't know me at the time, but Luke took Rob's word for it and we went to the ESPYs that Danica was hosting. Yeah. And it was her and, and Aaron. And 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 uh and Luke was like, yo, like like we were I was in the cut and and Rob was there. Luke, Luke was like, I brought you a gift. And he was like, what, bro? Like, you know, like looking at Luke, like, what do you mean? Like, and he's like, I brought you Lorenzo. And he was like, where the fuck did you go? Yo, we bro hugged, you know That's what I mean? Awesome. He's like, is here. Uh, where the fuck? I was like, I went to Video Village. Where the fuck did you go? I was fuck. I had to leave. I flew out. And it was just one of those moments. We stay in touch. We text here and there. That's nice so cool. guy. That's nice so guy. Cool. But, uh, you know, he, he definitely hated on Game of Thrones. So, you know. Oh, he wasn't feeling Game of Thrones. Uh, he wasn't feeling the ending. He went. He 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 took a shit on it, and I, I don't know, man. I, How do you feel about the ending? I love it because it's it? from the perspective of of. Bro, the most genius part is the dragon melting the throne. This entire fucking show was about that goddamn throne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the best part. That was like, the best part. By are a you mile. kidding me? Like, For sure. Like I, I I thought it was genius because why? Wh like, what do I expect it to be? It's not my perspective to to say so. Right, right. The creators are gonna say what they want. Exactly. This is how they they want the ending to because this is not a part of the book. And if you're riding with the show, you got to ride or die on yeah, the way. Yeah, like end. like people getting mad and boycotting it or whatever they wanted a petition to get the show to redo. Like that's come, just internet cancel are culture. Are you insane? Yeah, that's just people. it's the show. You know what I'm saying? Like that's what it was. For me though, I gotta say the show peaked when uh, Arya. Killed the Night King. That was some magic. That was fucking. I still get the, that was the just goosebumps. epic. Just talking about it just is epic. Beautifully done. Let's talk Sopranos though. Sure. <laughs> I'm fucking. I do want to know why were you excited to talk about this episode in particular? Well, I mean, I was. I was ironically because Nate 
was like, yo, you should talk about cold cuts because Gino's in it. Gino's my friend. Oh, your friend, right. He did the G- pod as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he, he has a small role in the beginning in of the the very docs. beginning. Yeah. So I was like, oh, let's do that. And that, you know, and, and, and then that's how it mushroomed? Yeah, that's how it mushroomed. But, you know, it, it is an actual, it is an actual great episode where you see the arcs of, you know, uh, Christopher and Tony's bickering. You see why they're bickering, but you can see that, not, 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 the cousin, Tony. Yeah. You know, like you can see, they're they're bickering, you know, like and Janice flipping the fuck out, you know, at the fucking soccer game, like you know, all that shit is real shit, and you feel it, like you know, and and how Tony antagonizing his fucking sister to make her flip out in the dinner table, like nudging her to get her to go. There you go, you fuck. I knew it was coming out of you. Like it's just genius because anger management doesn't work for people. Yes, like yeah, yeah, no, no. Um, how was the show influential in your work and life personally? Well, um, well, I'm from Queens, so very similar to the world of Jersey. You know, obviously they're like our cousins. You know what I mean? Um, but it's still Jersey. It's still Jersey, yeah. But but you know, the the show influenced me because it's so authentic, it's so real. Like the talking, the way the people walk, the way they act, the way they look, the way they talk about how someone just looked. You know, the way they talk about a girl, the way they talk about a guy. Like everything about it is, it couldn't have come from a realer place. You know what I mean? It, it's. <laughs> I know you. You're not a fan of Goodfellas, but it's just not my favorite <laughs> Scorsese it, movie. Okay, I, 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 which I think is hilarious. That, that, um, it's funny, but um, I think that. See, to me, what makes Sopranos a flawless show is the same reason that that Goodfellas is a flawless movie. Flawless. Not one thing that makes me cringe in that fucking movie because it's completely the neighborhood. All those scenes are in my neighborhood. It's based on characters from my neighborhood. It's the fucking neighborhood. That's the real life. And that's why it's so good. Nothing Hollywood about it. Nothing. And the same with Sopranos. And that's why, you know, people gravitate towards the real feelings of, of, of emotions and you know like everybody wants to hate on the guy with all the money and they want to break his balls behind his back and they want to fucking they want to say all that all that shit is happening in real life that's that that's that's what you do that's just that that that's life even if it's if, if, if you won't say it in front of his face but you're going to say it behind his back like every one of tony's you know on the bosses or guys we're, we're all talking shit you know what i mean and that's just reality um you know, where's Tony's position in the entire series? It's like, who wants to fucking have all that pressure on him? And then and then be a family man and then still have fucking gumas and still bang broads and be, you know, be try to be good, but you can't and you're you're conflicted because you wanna love your family, you wanna love your wife, but you wanna be around other it's just a fucking tough world. It's a tough Sopranos sets it to be this is as real as it gets, and this is how hard the world is. Mm. You know, no matter where you are and what position in life, it's fucking always compromising and hard. No matter what. Always trade-offs. Yeah. When Tony and Janice are going at it after he sees her on the news, Tony goes over to her house. Jan says, that bitch is lucky I didn't kill her. Yes. And Tony says, 
Well, we all know that. Was he talking about Richie? Any chance what happened to Richie slips right there and Bobby hears it for the first time? I think that that's, that's Richie, yeah. That's what he's talking about, yeah, right? I mean, I mean, why like, why else, you know what I mean? Unless did she kill somebody when she was a kid. Possibly. You know what I mean? Like, well, like when she, he breaks got, the balls about sucking dick under the boardwalk. Yeah, she's got demons. And part of me has always wondered, like, if Bobby had not been in the dark so much, would they have even gotten together? Like, Tony enabled... Tony kind of enabled their marriage. He could have prevented it by saying awful things about Janice ahead of time. I have a follow-up question to that, though. I'm going to ask you in a second. Later, Bobby says to Janice, it's not peaceful anymore. My question is something that I've wondered for a long time. Couldn't he see the writing on the wall, though? It makes you wonder if he's that naive or... Was Janice always part of a bigger plan for him, a means to an end? Well, I think both. I think that 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 he might have been that naive, but he also knew that there was no other way out for him. You know, he was always with Uncle June, and now he's married to the boss's sister. So where does he go from there? And if he wanted to elevate, now I'm your brother-in-law. Yeah. When Bobby gives her an ultimatum, and says, you know, you got to go to this anger management thing or it's oh, not going to work out. Yeah. I always got a little bit, and we don't spoil on the podcast, so what we just said I can't put on because I can't spoil it for the listeners. Do you get the sense there, I saw this, but it could be just much ado about nothing, that maybe Bobby's fate is going to be the same as Richie's because he's going to cross her? Maybe. I, I, I think that she was deep down, deep down trying to change and she knew that he had kids and, you know, she was trying to be the mother. Yeah. So he did see good in her because he knew that there was good in her. And I mean, and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't like the most attractive and ladies man anyway. So where was he going? You know what I mean? He needed some kind of mother figure, but he didn't know how insane she was. So he was damned if he did, damned if he didn't. You know, damn if you do, damn if you don't. At that particular moment, and how do you, how do you, when, when Tony's like, you got to put a fucking hold on your wife, yeah. like at the end. He of, said that twice, by the way. This yeah. is the second time he said it yeah. to him. Yeah, and he and 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 you know, and part of Bacala is like, brother, I can't control your wife, and I can't beat her because you'll kill me. You know what I mean? It's your sister. Like, what the fuck do I do? That's true. I can't. You know, I'm not that that would be the solution, but I mean, maybe that's. What he was thinking, like I can't put my I can't put put my foot down because she'll spaz out on me and make me do something crazy and then fucking and you'll kill me. It's your sister. It'll like, be what a godfather the... thing. Like exactly. uh like uh, uh well the Talia Shire. Talia but, Shire. Yeah, yeah. Uh it doesn't matter whether you're married or not. Richie April said put a ring on it, then you can do it, but it doesn't apply if it's your sister. Tony B's casino, Lorenzo. Chris is pissed about it. Do you think Tony B deserved it? Did he have it coming? Well, and how do you feel about Tony B in general? Well, he he was owed it. If he was in if he was in prison for something that he didn't give up anything and he was holding it down for the family, then he's probably owed some back time, you know what I mean? Because he's if he had to do 10 years, 5 years, I don't know what the backstory is, how many years is. I can't that's I think it was 18 years. So he did all right, so he did 18 joints for for the family, say, in theory. You come home, you expect to earn. 
Yeah. Like more than my little nephew, my little cousin. Like I, I, I just held down 18 fucking years without ratting. I'm going to eat now. And don't don't be a dick about it. But yep. Christopher, Christopher was being a fucking bitch. He was being a baby about it. Like, man, man, man. Like a little baby about it. But that's part of him going through his sobriety. That's what's really good about the fucking writing. The sobriety has you do nothing but rack your brain. If you drink, you ain't got time to get all upset. You're boozing. You're with that. Ah, ah, ah. But when you're fucking sober and you got to sit with yourself and you're going through the motion of being one year because he has 14 months at that time. He has 14 months sober. When you go through that, you, 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 everything bothers you because you have no source to go to and get your fucking fix. Release. You can't release and get a drink and fucking say, ah, I'm going to get whacked with that. Let's get fucking drunk and have a drink and forget about it. No, but they go up there to fucking hide a body and he's like, I'm dealing with this fucking, my, uh, my cousin and then now they're breaking my balls at the dinner table. And they're irking me and irking me and irking me, breaking my fucking balls. And I'm mad at this guy because he's making more money for me. I do everything for Tony, and I'm still never good enough. But he doesn't realize that he's 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 rising the rank by Tony B being in fucking jail for 18 years, held down way more weight than what Christopher's been doing on the street because he could have gave up the entire family to be home earlier and then be in fucking Wisconsin eating fucking noodles and fucking ketchup. Like fucking what's-his-face. Ray Liotta, I'm Ray Liotta, whatever the fuck, uh, uh, the other guy in Goodfellas. I'm, I'm, now my brain is mush. Yeah, it's all good. You Henry ever, Hill. <laughs> yes, there you yeah. go, Henry Hill. Your insight about his sobriety was actually awesome because it probably will needle thread a lot of these other follow-up questions. It's dead accurate, by the way, I love that. When Chris is talking to Aid while packing, you think he really believes he could be a model or write from a position of great wealth? Or was that just self-talk for the ball breaking he's about to endure this weekend. But we can talk about why she's saying that. Uh, or is that because later well, on? yeah, so she yeah, so she, we well, we know that she's compromised she's with the FBI. Yeah, yeah. And she's trying to make her move. But yeah. in this episode, we had forgotten that till this point because they had that great moment at the cake yeah. shop. And then when she sees him complaining about his lot in life, that's when she moves in and she's like, well, maybe we should think about moving. That's a trigger to the viewer that remember that that FBI thing is a monkey on yep. her back right now. And he goes, I'll get to my writing when I'm at a position of great wealth, which is a really funny line right. because it's, it's just ridiculous. And then the line about where she says you could take up male modeling. Again, everybody in the room chuckles. Especially right. Richie April, rest in peace, right? Because of the canopy joke. Right. But does he believe these things about himself? Does Christopher have that kind of self-talk confidence? Or is he just talking himself up in front of his girl, knowing that he's about to get ragged on the whole weekend by guys who break his balls for a living? Well, I think, I think, I think, A, if you, if, if you have confidence, you feel like you're superior and you can do everything, you know, you can do anything you want. But if you have the hottest girl in the town or the hottest girl on By the show. She's the hottest girl. She's your hottest girlfriend and she's telling you that you can model and yeah, yeah, you, you think you can fucking model. Good point. Model. Yeah. Good point. You remember back a few episodes ago, Tony said the great line, she's a 10 and you're average at best. Yeah. And take this and throw it in the waste bin yeah, for yeah, me. Yeah, exactly. Um, anger management. Uh, <laughs> that's the theme of this episode, man. Yeah. Does it work on people like Janice or Tony? And what do you think about anger management in general? Just as a personal, like if you were talking with friends, like would you recommend it to somebody? Have you done anything like that? What are your thoughts on that? Like can you fix people's fucking horrible 
Behavior? repressed things from childhood. This is this stems from childhood. Can you fix it as an adult in general? What are your thoughts? I don't on know. That? I, 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 you know, I think there's so many people are different. You know, like um, and that uh, this episode is so like like the 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 level of hypocrisy, the fluctuations of their moods. Yes, right? yes, and the level of hypocrisy from Tony. I'll get into that in a second, but I think everyone's different. So. If you can talk out your problems or write, I find out writing my problems out, like if I got something with someone and I'm just like so furiated and I'm, I want to flip the fuck out and I want to go crazy, I write everything out and then I read it and I rewrite it and I rewrite it and I rewrite it out. But when you're in the street, it's a different story. Um, and, and that's real. But I think that, um, you know, can you, like, was... Those scenes with Janice and like what she was trying to articulate, and the and the, and the, and the, the 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 anger management guy was, you know, trying to. I don't know if that really works because you know, I, you know, like how you got to just do some soul searching. I, I don't really know because I've never been to therapy. I've never been to anger management. I've never done any of that, and I and I'm sober six years, and I don't go to AA, but I've been to AA. So to me, I focus on and this may help other people who 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 might agree with me me i focus on i love myself i am going to love myself and that's going to translate and express to other people because that you love yourself then you can love others and if you love yourself and you want to love others and you want to be positive and pass positive energy at all times then you know like if you want to be that at that level all the time, then you're going to always do what's best for you. You know what's best for you. If snapping and saying something stupid and fighting and getting all hyper about something, you know it's not best for you, then you just know. I'm not, you know, picking up a drink and getting crazy is not best for me, so I'm not going to do it. You know, snapping about this situation right now, I'm going to go take a walk. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, because you know what's best for you, and aggravation is the fucking biggest way to, it, my father says this, 88-year-old man from Naples, he says, aggravation will kill you. Aggravation will kill you. Being angry, aggravation. Stress all the time. Me, 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 me. Why me? Fuck this. Fuck you. Fuck him. Fuck that. He's got this. He's got that. I hate this. I hate that. Negative thoughts, negative things. Only hurts you in the end. Positive thoughts, positive things. But back to the hip-hop, why that, these parts of this, episode, this was great about the writing is that you see Janice is trying. Yes. Tony, get a hold of your wife. You got anger problems. Tony beats the shit out of his fucking bartender for no fucking reason. Right after going yeah. to upstate the where he was of relaxed, he went from super calm yeah. to super rage. Yeah. And then at the very end, which we'll talk about, the jokes about Tony... Chris even points them out to Tony at the dinner table. He says, you know that joke that we're making? Yeah, that was about, about you. you. Yeah. Um, why do you think he's unfazed compared to earlier in the season when Tony B was breaking balls in front of the guys? Maybe that's the answer, actually. Uh, like You already said it, too. Like He had zero tolerance when Tony B would make jokes in front of the crew. But when he's making jokes in front of just Christopher... It's just family. It's okay. So families, family gets a pass. Because we're, we're amongst blood. You know, we're amongst each other. We're amongst friends. You're not amongst... Well, I mean... I, yeah, I, I think it's all that because at the end of the day, there's no, um, you know, there's no real uh, 
there's no real like embarrassment when you're around your your your, your cousins and your family. You'll cry in front of them. You'll 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 do anything because it's your blood. You know what I mean? Like you guys were in the crib together. You guys were, you know, you know, you went to your first ball game together or whatever. You know what I mean? Like there's a difference of like you know, you know, these guys got a. There's a precedence of what I look like to these guys. You know, there's a presence that I got to keep upkeep. And if you take that away from me, I'm going to be angry. But if we're in this, the the presence of, you know, us three. And we're in a fucking club. We're in a we're in a place upstate New York, up or down the Jersey Shore, wherever they were. We we just seen Uncle Patty, right? Uncle Pat. Uncle Pat in Kinderhook, yeah. New York. So that was in New York. So we're there, you know. We're eating. We're we're we're, we're breaking each other's balls, and then you could see they're having fun breaking their little cousin's balls. Christopher's having a fucking meltdown, and then he wants to go drink. But he doesn't. But he doesn't. Yet. Why do you think, well, I also think he's, I, I feel like in a past episode, he's telling everybody that he's sober 14 months, but I think he's touched it a few times. And I have to, I'm going to have to go back and check on that. But the point is, the theme of this episode, when we did the deep dive on it, was that it's all bullshit. Everything everybody's doing is complete bullshit. Christopher lies to Tony B. He says, yeah, I was, I, I was saying the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, Benny was complaining about yeah, it. Yeah, it's, yeah. All, it's just it's all, all predicated yeah, on yeah. bullshit. He was the biggest hater. He was the biggest hater. Yeah. And he still is. And it's another thing is the beauty of the show. If you're watching it for the first time, you always are thinking, you know, before this episode ends, is Christopher going to kill Tony B.? Because he's really good at killing people. And as you can see, he smashes the bones. He's like a Subway sandwich artist, is the joke I make, for killing people. He knows how to do it efficiently, and he knows how to dispose of it efficiently. Yeah. Nobody does it better than Christopher on the show. Um, speaking of more bullshit, why do you think Carmela told Wegler she was getting back with Tony? Because she really wanted it. It's her husband. Yeah. She's you know, old she, school. She, 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 you know, this doctor was in her life, and he's a doctor. Teacher, right? teacher. He's a teacher, yeah. The teacher. AJ's teacher. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I just, yeah. I don't know, I no, I love, I love that because it shows you that you're normal and how much of a disease I have that I've seen the show 9,000 times. Right, right, no, okay. no, I, no, I get it. No, <laughs> I can tell you his middle I'm name. I'm even bad at, even if I watch it 9,000 times, I, I, I'd be bad at the, the, the smaller characters. But you think, she really, you think she really wants it, huh? Well, that's what she manifested. She said it because she obviously was mad that he, he blew her off. Interesting. And she says it to, you know what? Like, I'm, set, I'm putting it out there. I'm putting it out there. I'm going to get back with my husband. And then when she's talking with uh, April's wife, what's up, uh, um, uh, Rosalie? Rosalie, when she when they're talking later on, and she's like, ah, oh, you know, what, did he really fuck it? And she's like, yeah, you believe that shit? This fucking prick, whatever the fuck the dialogue was. And then, and he's like, do you? And she goes, I told him I'm gonna be back with Tony. And she goes, Are you? She goes, No. But you could see like, she wants to stay tough. That's her husband. Hmm. Where the fuck is she going? She knows. She she's, knows she's not she, going anywhere. Where's she going? Yeah. Meadow knows that too. Meadow's more or less told has, has told her that. On the way home solo, maybe this speaks to your point earlier. Why did Chris break down in the car? It's not completely apparent or obvious. What did you take from that scene? It's a very powerful scene. Well, he doesn't want to be... He wants to be a big shot. He's not there yet. Um, he feels like he's owed more than he deserves. You know, he feels like he's owed more than he's got or whatever the, 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 the right, you know, what I'm trying to articulate in my fucking mushy brain right now. And 
He just got his balls broken. And he's got it, and he's sober. So all that shit's on his mind as he's driving. And he just crushed skulls and bones of dead people that he's killed. Having breakfast with his family the next morning. That's got to be fucked up in the head. Like, I just crushed this this dude's bone that I killed. This is my first guy, my first Croatian guy, or whatever the fuck, Slovakian guy that he killed. Hey, he was my first. It was a Slovakian guy, or whatever the fuck the guy was. I mean, that's got to weigh in on you. Like, you know, like, I'm sober. My, my you know, my boss is breaking my balls, but he's my family, and I hate him, but I love him. Um, so the sobriety's made him a prisoner of his mind. Bro, sobriety's is rough because you do have... The mind is a dangerous place. My uncle Joe Broccoli. Shout, shout out to Joe Broccoli. I love you. He's uh, like my second father. He raised me with my dad. And uh, he's a, one of the realest guys I know. And he's definitely a huge mentor in my life. He taught me so much. And he's always saying, the mind is a dangerous place. Mm. It's very big. And you can get lost inside there. And that's what I think is going on with Christopher. And that happens during sobriety. Because when I was sober... I think my first to second year after transferring all my addictions to smoking more and eating fucking M&Ms and more fucking baby roots and all these other things that I was eating like a fucking animal. And, you know, that was my transfer of addiction. That was my new, a new addiction for sugar. And this is what I'm going to get my fix on. Red Bull, ah, you know, like what, you know, whatever. So you look at that. And that goes away. And now you only have coffee. What, like, you have no vice to go to to decompress. Nothing. And, and, and being sober, you are fucking on edge, especially when you're around people that drink and they get drunk and they don't have a problem or they do have a problem, but you, they don't, they, they're not trying to fix their problem. And, they, and, they, and, and when you see people mutate into drunks and you're sober, it's disgusting and it depresses you. Because you're conflicted. So it's tough. It's tough. It's a fantastic thing. Sobriety is a fantastic thing for people who need it. And I, I needed it. So I got six years. Knock on wood. Thank God. Does that mean you'll ne- you're never going to touch alcohol oh, fuck again? No, I'm done. Done. I don't need it. Like I said, back to what I said earlier. If you love yourself, you put that love into others. Because if you hate yourself, misery loves company. Hmm. So I love myself. And... I want to be the best I can to everyone I know and put out great energy and be a giver and always give. And alcohol made me a devil, made me the demon. I can't tell you one good thing that happened to me because of alcohol. Every bad thing that happened to me was because of alcohol. So now that I'm elevating and things are really taking off for me, starting to really you know, pop off, I'm, you know... It's, 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 it's scary to ever think that, eh, I can have one drink. Never. I just have to shut it off. Booze, out. Everything's out in my life. I drink water, coffee. And on my cheat day, I'll have orange juice. Or sometimes I'll have a, not a sugar-free Red Bull. So you're no sugar either? No sugar, no keto? carbs. Yeah, yeah. How hard was that to? It's fucking brutal. Yeah. All of it's brutal. Like anything that's not your norm is. Is the cheat day? Um, this is off script, but is the cheat day uh, 
like the Tim Ferriss cheat day, like one day a week you eat whatever you want? I, um, do, I do that when I get to the point of where I'm happy, but right now I'm not there yet. So I want to get leaner and leaner and leaner, and then I can do the one day a week. Right now I cheat once a month. Once a like month? big. Okay. Like one I'll day. Go, one day I'll have 10 slices of pizza or two pies from Joe's on Sunset. It's the only one that's like Italian fucking pizza over here. Um, I go there. I go... Um, I'll get donuts. I'll get fucking. I'll get cereal. I go crazy, bro. That'll be that's <laughs> my advice. I get stupid. I get fucking so fucking nuts on eating. But like it's a good. It, it, it tricks your body. Is what I read when I was looking into that stuff. Was that like the the Tim Ferriss method or whatever his idea of it was? Was that it makes your body your metabolism actually work harder because it's not you're shocking the system and that's why the cheat day is actually necessary. Yeah, and and it's very. It's, it is necessary. It shocks your system and it re-spikes all your fucking stuff. And it motivates you to get right back into it. And you um, realize also there's a, probably some truth to the fact that when you taste things that are super sweet, they're not as sweet anymore. And you realize yeah. you didn't really, you weren't really missing it. As soon as you get the, 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 the sweet tooth out, it's like, it's like a, a whole nother world. To What's be. worse to you in your opinion, alcohol or sugar? If you could have one or n- and not the other, which would it be? It sounds like it would be, it would, would be sugars. Cause you're it done. Sugars. Yeah. I, I would, uh, but the problem with alcohol is that that alcohol is carbs and sugar, and it turns into the worst kinds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, like I would love to eat a nice watermelon or fucking some strawberries and shit like that, but that's sugar too. And when you're on keto, you can knock yourself out of ketosis, and it's so hard to get into ketosis. So right now, I'm I'm really, you know working on that is to be in in ketosis and then when you know that you're in ketosis you you will fuck you'll just be like grass water and a piece of fish yeah because then you know you can stay there and how do you know it's a dumb question but how do you know you could do the keto mojo is a is a is a like a like the kind of like the how the coronavirus is the is it a blood test a blood test how they 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 come and you know uh test you like prick your finger and then they put that into the thing that's keto mojo. You can do that, or you can piss in a in a on a strip, and it'll tell you if you're in ketosis or not. You can do it's like a home kit. Yeah, you can piss on a stick. Yeah, pee on like a little strip, and 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 that's that'll tell you whether you're starting your levels are starting to go up, and then it it takes time, but it's like I I think I'll be in ketosis by tomorrow because I'm not gonna cheat today, even though it's Memorial Day. I'm probably gonna have some, you know, meat and. Little bit of salad and shit from wherever I go. I'm not gonna. I, I'm. I'm. I'm not gonna eat probably as perfect as I'd like to. Couple more questions and we'll let you get out of here. Final scene. Tony destroying Janice to pieces. Was it because he can't stand to see her happy? Misery loves company. And he is just. Tony is just a, was the only boy, right? And he just wants to abuse his sister. That's his way. I mean, I mean, I don't see any other way. I mean, that's your sister. Why, you know, like, you know, you don't like. He just wants to, and I don't mean physically abuse, but abuse. You know, like when, when people are like, ah, I was abusing her. You know, I was abusing him. You know, what I mean, like, like, uh, just psychology, psychoticness. You know, like, like just abusing them in a way that, you know, just to be a prick. Yeah. Just to be, I, I can and I will be a prick to you. That's what that was because what else could there be? I mean, there's no other, you know, like she's just a mess. He knows it, you know, and that episode 
he's particularly irked because she beats this chick up, even though the other chick was antagonizing her, but it doesn't look like that in the, in the media. His name is all brought up. My boss, Tony Soprano's fucking sister, blah, 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 beats up a soccer, and she's just pounding on it, and she's, and she's getting thrown in the cop car like a savage animal. So in the back of his mind, he's like, this fucking bitch, you know what I'm saying, is fucking killing me. Like she, she, she I, I, like, like, like you're my sister, but I, I hate you. That was payback for what she did in the soccer field. You think? I think so, it was payback. A lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, Agreed. I think that that was payback. And, and also, I think deep rooted. He doesn't. He doesn't want her to. He because he kind of looks at her. He's like listening to her when she's in the kitchen when she has the hot when oh, she has the so, ice skates so on. So condescending. And she's so happy. Yeah. And he's just kind of like he's, he's like, almost like he's disgusted. Yeah. He's that like yeah. Right, okay. You can't cool. come out of the same house that I came out of and be happy. But then it comes back to, it goes back to Barbara, who's their other sister that you only see a couple few times in the show. He doesn't have a problem with her. I think it's because she's not involved. I think she's too far removed, but he has, he has an ax to grind with Janice from day one. And this, the scene, that we, this final scene in this episode is I think where they're at their low point. Any stray items is my last question for you. Yeah. Did I miss anything? Any stray items? What's the Lorenzo capstone on this episode? I mean, okay, the way and the reason why um, Sax took the Vespas, like that nudge, like those little nudges to me are, are, are real. You know what I mean? Like that's like, uh, like uh, I got some other one. Like we, we answered, we talked about that, Tony and uh, Carmela's divorce. What about it? Well, I, I, I thought there was a sense of hope. Yeah. You know, that, 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 like in that episode, there was a sense of hope. Like See, I didn't. Trying. The scene, the be again, beautiful shot choice to go to the bottom of the pool, looking up. Mm -hmm. It was like the edge of the world, like the rock bottom, so to speak. That was a low point for them that she took the one thing away. She cock blocked him basically from using his swimming pool. Yeah. And that was building up. We've seen in multiple episodes leading up to this, he comes in, he lays out in the thing and mm -hmm. it drives her crazy. The pilot episode drives her crazy. It goes all the way back Gosh. to the beginning when he's in the pool swimming and just wasting his, f whatever the fuck he's doing. Um, I didn't think that was hopeful. It's interesting to me that you saw the Wegler thing as like, she well, wants I thought, this. I thought the conversation in the kitchen was a little better. Okay. Okay. Because I'm with there you. was hope in that. Like, oh, it wasn't all bad. He it wasn't. Says. It wasn't. Yeah. He it, says it, it wasn't all bad. Yeah. So, like, he's trying to like, like, it wasn't all bad. Like, you know, let's fix what are we, this. What are we doing? Well, let's let's fix this. Not. I wasn't speaking as particularly of the of that shot going from the pool up. That was ugly. That was that was that, and that was her poking him, and 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 he deserved it. You know what I mean? Like, like you know, he like, deserves everything he gets. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he just doesn't give a fuck, and that's what's great about him. He's just like, I'm fucking gonna do whatever the fuck. He's I a little want. bit of all guys. Yeah. He's a little bit of every single guy on this fucking planet. Yeah, and that's, that's what it, that's what it is. That's a good point. Um, um, what else you got? The Soprano Rage. Yes, the Soprano Rage is is, is what I wanted to talk about because how he flipped out on on our, on. Wow, well, can I? What the fuck? I'm spacing the the psychiatrist. Oh, Melfi. Melfi flips on Melfi in there. And almost fucking kills her. Yeah, I mean the Soprano Rage is the, the to me is the is. We've seen it, by the way. Oh, Livia yeah. and Johnny Boy. Johnny Boy cuts the old man Satrial's finger off. Yep. We've seen that. Yep. And the ironic thing, which I'm sure you caught also, or you'll remember, 
is that that final scene where he comes downstairs and Polly comes to tell him about Georgie, who he beat, you know, beat to shit. He doesn't want to see you. It's all in Livia's house. He's living in Livia's house, the center, the focal point, the, the sort of like the core of all that negativity and all that rage and all that anger. He's like breathing that air. And that just sort of drives the point home that this, this anger management, it's, he's tainted with it. Uh, I have another um, kind of with Artie, with Buko. Yeah. Another reason, like what Artie's done to him, whether it's putting a gun to him when he found out about the the, the restaurant or the way he smacked him or whatever it was, when like shit like that, think about it. He never killed his own best friend. That's his blood. That's his, like his best friend. Yeah. He's let him slide. Artie gets a pass on He everything. gets a pass on everything yeah. because they've been going back since they were fucking kids. And he knows his he knows Tony better than anybody. He calls him out on whatever the fuck he wants. So there's there's the, the level of if Artie did that in front of the bosses or in in, in behind closed doors. You know, one thing about Artie, it's an interesting point you brought up. It's not related to this episode necessarily, but if Tony wasn't the way he was with Artie, I think that we would not look at him the same way. I think that the fact that there's this one outside guy that can get away with anything keeps us with Tony. If he were to do anything to Artie, I think he would lose a lot of people. Yeah. I feel like there's this, I feel like in the writing is so smart that they know that he'll teeter on the brink 24 seven. But with Artie, we know that there's like an, there's like a safe Island. If, right. the, if Artie was ever in danger, I feel like our thoughts toward him would change. Do you agree with that? Yes. It's a big yeah. thing. Yeah. It's a simple thing, but it's a big thing. Like, it's a real thing. It keeps him, yeah, it keeps him from being a complete fucking monster, basically. You know? I got another one. Okay. Why did Tony hate this fucking poor bartender? He always abused him. And that was the straw. That was the end of the straw. Like, we beat the shit out of him. But why? He always had a problem with him. What did he do wrong? Shit always goes downhill, I think. And I think it's, uh, I mean, th this is just me like reacting off the cuff here. I feel like Georgie was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. And when you're pissed off, fortunately for Carmela and fortunately for his kids, when Tony was pissed off, he could project his rage on Georgie. A lot of people come home, a lot of guys come home from mm -hmm. a day at the job yeah. and they take it out on their wives and they sure. take it out on their kids and they take sure. it out on their cousins and their siblings that's another aspect of Tony's character that's sort of redeemable is that he didn't bring that shit home. Yeah. He left it at the door. Most guys can't do that. So Georgie was just, unfortunately, Georgie just existed. Yeah. That was he, Georgie's problem. He was just existing. Georgie's problem was that that was his job. Yeah. That you work at the strip club and, and you, you, you take you, a beating for every once in a while. You yeah. Gotta, you, you don't know you how get to, the brunt of all of Tony's problems. You don't know how to <laughs> transport ice. That was the thing that pissed off Tony yeah. was the ice. The, he said like, let the water melt a little bit. And he, and he answered back, yeah. you know, he responded. Carmela can say whatever she, she wants to Tony and he can't retaliate. AJ and Meadow can say whatever they want to Tony and he can't retaliate. But that motherfucker, if you open your mouth, game over. But he did go too far, but it was the perfect episode to do it in. Again, genius in the writing. It was building up to something. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the last we ever see Georgie. I'm not sure if he comes yeah, back. Yeah, because he, he quit. Done. He didn't yeah. want to. Paulie says, he, he, Georgie's done and he doesn't want you to come to the hospital. 
Here's a cynical fucking question for you. He handed Paulie the money. I was going to say, I was going to say, how much do you think it was? Well, it was in the thousands. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But two questions. Why didn't Tony just take the money back right there after he basically got dissed? You could see he wanted to. Yeah, he was thinking of it. That yes. was it was that thinking about it. Genius. But then also, does Polly give the money or does Polly pocket Polly, that shit? Polly probably pocketed half. Polly took his cut. Yeah. Okay. I gotta take this from my ma. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this was awesome. This Lorenzo. is fucking out. Yeah. This thank is you amazing. for thank you for being here little, and doing well, we this. We gotta do something. We gotta do something for the gram. Before I let you go, where can listeners find you? Find out about your work. Yeah, I know you're on the gram. What's your what's your at? Uh, at Lorenzo Antonucci Jr. L O R E N Z O A N T O N U C C I J R for Junior. Lorenzo Antonucci Jr. And the name of your show we talked about at the, the beginning. The, there's Cracker. There's Paradise City. These are these are the, the, the ones that are gonna be coming out. And I just booked the pilot, which I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say names, but it's based off a bestseller. And I'm playing Stephen Bauer's son. Wow. That's all I can say. Congrats, man. Much success to you. Best wishes. Shoot this piece of shit. Stay well during this time and uh, look forward to hanging out again when it's normal. Yes. Thanks, brother. Vic, it was a pleasure to to be on here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for uh, at least giving me the opportunity for, for, for my insight on cold cuts or anything Sopranos. And I am very, very honored to be the one that helped you get Drea. Meant a lot. Thanks again, Lorenzo. Absolutely. Thank you, Vic.